once people are making UI mods that make it easier to tell what's going on in raids and easier to see cooldowns and easier to heal people, um, now we have to balance encounters, taking assuming that people mm. have those mods. Right. So someone who comes in who's never who doesn't know anything about mods, it's like, geez, this game is really hard. Yeah, yeah. that's a really good point. Well, and also if you and, and just think about, you know, if you watch, if you see a screenshot of someone <laughs> in the raid game, it just looks retarded. Yeah. Like all that shit they have up there. Hi everybody, this is Soren Johnson and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today we are talking to Rob Pardo, who was formerly the Chief Creative Officer at Blizzard Entertainment. He is best known for his design work on StarCraft 1 and 2, WarCraft 3, and World of WarCraft. Did StarCraft have any matchmaking? No. Or was it just... Re- would- you just go look for lobbies, or yeah. like there wasn't even a like match me button. No. Wow. That, was, that is a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, well, and a lot of people I, I know of reference Warcraft Three is where they kind of did all their stuff. You know, like all the Bungie guys stole all the Warcraft Three stuff. Did any other strategy game do that before? I just don't remember. I don't think so. Wow. So that's pretty. That is a huge deal. Wow. Um, what was your original conception like? Um, I mean, it was. I just always felt like that was going to be the, the best. So what always happens, I think, in any sort of competitive game yeah. is, you know, you have that, that experience where you always have these uneven matches and it's almost always really hostile to new players, especially once the community is up and going. And there's, I think that's one of the reasons why people would want to get rid of rush strategies and things like that, because before matchmaking, people always felt like, well, there's something you can do with the game to make it, you know, more friendly for novice players. And I just always felt like it's not a design problem or at least not, a, you know, within the game itself. The way to do it is you just got to make sure that the right players play each other. Right. And how I always just always thought about it is everyone has a great experience if they play against someone that's around the same skill level as they are. Right. right? So if you're, if you're a novice player, I mean, it's not like the game, because I mean, because novice players, if they're playing each other, they're probably not going to use rush tactics. They're, not, they're probably going to turtle up and have this super long game where they get to the whole tech tree and you know play an hour long game, and that's what they want, right? And then the advanced players, they just want to be brutal and fast and win as fast as they can. So it's like, well, why don't, why don't we just try to come up with a way so they're playing each other rather than you know have all these matches where you, know, you play ten matches and maybe only one of them was was a good match. The rest you either smashed the other person or got smashed. And so I just always felt like there's got to be a way to crack that. Right. So. All right. So um, where did you guys start? Um, I mean, it's Battle.net, really. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it was, you know, it was going to be a Battle.net feature. And we just talk a lot about how to do it, you know. And, um, you know, there's a variety of, of decisions in there. Mm-hmm. But um, the probably the... What was your, like... It's, it'd be interesting to sort of what your initial theory was and how that, I assume, did not quite work and then yeah. how you, you know, where you, how you went from there. Well, I mean... And how could you even test it, right, until... Yeah, you can't really test it until beta, yeah. for sure. You can't... It's not something you really do internally, so... But the thing was, our betas were long enough that we knew we'd be able to kind of test it once we got there. But yeah, internally, it's nothing you can do. Um, I mean, there's a there's a... 
there's a few different things which are issues. The, the first one is, well, what are you going to match? What's the match criteria? And back then, you know, the only thing we're really thinking about was skill. So that's your first question is, well, how do we determine someone's skill? And, you know, the really easy thought process was, you know, use some sort of ELO sort of system. Right. And, but then one of the other big issues that we had, so StarCraft had an ELO system for the ladder. Okay. Um, which I'm also... And that was part of the game itself? Like- yeah, the ladder was, but, um, but there wasn't matchmaking. Okay. So the ladder, though, like you were getting, you were gaining or losing points every time you played okay. a ladder. So you match. would, right? So you you could play with anyone, and it would affect your your. I, I understand. Yeah. Okay. Because Elo already deals with deals that, with right? that. Yeah. But the thing is, um, I always felt like Elo is is not a fun ladder, right? You know, I mean, yeah. it's very good at determining who the best player is, uh-huh. but it's not necessarily built for fun. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. if it's not designed. <laughs> yeah, so to speak. So, so that was one of the first problems that we had was that the way to figure out what someone's skill is is not necessarily what's going to be fun to play in. So we actually, so for the longest time, we were trying to come up with a ladder system that was fun to play and we can match make against it. But what we eventually had to do was separate the two concepts. Okay. So, so there's the ladder that has more of a progression feel to it. You know, we did, you know, experience levels and you get higher levels and all that. So it felt good to play in and it felt mm-hmm. like you're making progression, but the way that we determine your skill and who we match you against is a totally invisible thing right. behind the scenes. And that was that kind of similar to ELO, but just was hidden. Yeah. yeah. It, it started with ELO and it's evolved a ton since then. Sure. But, but yeah. So, cause the thing is too, like another really good example is when it comes to matchmaking with skill, um, we want to get to what your skill is as soon as humanly possible. Sure. But with a ladder, you want to drag it out over three months before you get to like the top levels. You want it to feel more meaningful and that you had to work for it and there's effort and time investment. But that's the exact opposite of what you want when it comes to matchmaking. We want to zero in on your skill as soon as possible and you match So each game will be fun. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting because then what that means is you could easily be matching like a level five player versus level 20 player and you know that they're of equal skill, probably, yeah. as best as you can tell. But is there an issue because that's not communicated to the player? Because they'll be like, yeah. oh, I'm playing a level 20. Like, this, this, this matchmaking is broken. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, and that's that's definitely an issue that we have. And then we end up kind of a little bit in the middle where, you know, we don't we won't allow matches that are too spread across levels like that. Yeah, I suppose you'll, you know, you'll get a list of, like, these are these are the best... These are the best matches for this player, and let's try our best to find one that happens to be yeah. coincidentally. Like and then that's the, the other thing too: is how do you want to optimize for um, how fast or how long does it take to get matches? Like that's another big point that you have to think about because um, yep. you know, is it better to have you have an imperfect match found in ten seconds yep. <laughs> or the five minute long surge to get the perfect? How do you match? make that decision? I mean, it's a lot of instincts and just play testing, you know, and, and we'd try different numbers until we kind of got to a place where we felt pretty good about it. And it, it goes in... Um, Nowadays, I suppose people would A-B test that, right? Like yeah, they, probably. they have different cohorts that have different times and see like what the retention rate is for blah, yeah. blah, blah. Well, and the way it works too is, um, so it starts when you first go into the matchmaking pool, you actually have a very restricted 
view, you know, you're trying to find a really perfect match. Yeah. But then after, I don't know, like 15, 20 seconds or something, then it starts to loosen up the criteria yeah. until it just finally finds somebody. Yeah. So what happens to players who are not particularly good, but just keep playing the game over and over again? And presumably they end up going up, <laughs> going up pretty high in the ladder. It seems like it'd be really tricky problem to try to figure out who to match them with. Right, like these. Uh... Well, no, I mean the ladder. So the way the Warcraft Three ladder worked is, um, it starts kind of time investment sort of feeling, you okay. know, like an experience curve. Okay, but eventually you'll kind of run out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So and and that was just a lot of tuning. So so what is how how much did you expose of the um, the the system behind that? Like, was it like you need this many points, whatever, to go up to the next level, and you get these yeah. points per victory. Yeah, yeah. People, yeah, we publish how all that stuff worked, and people figured it out anyways. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Was it was it pretty straightforward, or was it dynamic? Um, uh, it's sort of straightforward. I mean, it's mathy, but you know, the people that are in the community that get math, it's it's not crazy math or anything. I mean, the thing where it would get weird is. Um, you know, it wasn't always obvious to players why this game I gained this many experience points and this next game I gained less or more because that's also pinging off the you know the the skill. So that was always a little hidden for players. But right. could you lose yeah. progress? Yeah, eventually. Not at first, and that was the thing. It it starts off feeling very RPG ish that you uh-huh. can't lose progress, but you'll eventually settle into the ladder where now you can start losing progress. Did you have any sense of like people dropping off once they? Once they, like, officially were not making any more progress and they kind of hit their limit skill-wise? Yeah, I think that definitely, that happens, yeah, always. <laughs> it's happening in Hearthstone right now, too. Yeah, it's, I don't know a way to solve that. Like, that's why I think it's really interesting with ladders like um, the Warcraft one or the Hearthstone one, because, you know, I'm trying to do two things simultaneously. You know, I'm trying to make the ladder kind of fun and feel progression-y, um, but at the same time still accomplish the high-level goals, which is skill. And Hearthstone, you know, I took another crack at it, which is even different than the way I did it in Warcraft 3. So, you know, with Hearthstone, I just chunk the players separately. So uh-huh. you kind of have the, the 1 through 25 rank, and then if you get to that top rank, now it turns into a brutal ELO system, mm-hmm. but only for those guys. Right. And, you know, once you're in that category, then I feel like, okay, now I can be gloves off, and now it can be the, you know, the true ladder system that those types of players do want. Right. But I feel like 99% of your player base, you know, want to feel like they're always getting better, even though they're probably skill capped, but right. you want to give them that sense of progression. And plus, am I right that Hearthstone also has some sort of, you know, sort of a separate leveling system that's just like, as you do stuff in the game, yeah. you get experience points that go to this level that doesn't really mean anything beyond like you've been investing this much time in the game. Yeah. And, and we also do reward you. Like you get some yeah. special golden cards from leveling up. But yeah, that's your feel-good kind right. of time progression system and yeah. the ladder. I, I bet for some people, as long as that's there, they'll keep playing the game. Yeah. Right? I think there's definitely a, a set of users that just feel like they feel like they want to feel like they're moving, they're pushing something forward. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we always used to joke in World of Warcraft that I just need another bar to push. push <laughs> I feel this. I'm yeah. done filling bars. Please give me new bars. Yeah. 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 Well, another good example, actually, is what we started doing with uh, World of Warcraft with Dungeon Finder. Okay. Because sure. that was actually a wholly different way of using matchmaking, but more in a co-op sense rather than a competitive sense. Right. Yeah. I mean, that seemed like that was aimed to solve sort of population problems, right? Of like... Um, like you know, we need to we need to match we need to match the tanks and the healers and the mm. DPS guys together, yeah. even though they might be spread across 
servers and whatnot, right? Well, that came later. I mean, at first it was only on a server. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing that Dungeon Finder was was trying to solve was, um, you know, making dungeons more playable among the you know the population base. I mean, it was really hard to put together a dungeon group. Like they are they were the most fun piece of content we had in the game, but it wasn't surfaced very well for players. Okay, so you go to a dungeon and it would put you you know it would take some time to kind of figure out who to match you with. Yeah. If it was just one server, wouldn't there be issues with there's not enough people? To like match yeah. it up against. Yeah, um, no, there's definitely. I mean, we had to. So that feature again, we had to make certain choices to try. Like one of the biggest things about matchmaking design is um, you want to have as few buckets as possible, and that's what it's kind of one of those counterintuitive things that mostly you go to your team and you say, "Oh, how do you want how do you want this to work?" And you get feature, 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 and I want to build. A, I want this filter and that filter. That's the death of a matchmaking system. I mean, basically, one of the things you have to really think about when it comes to matchmaking is um, keep as few buckets as possible because you want to keep a critical mass of players so it can have enough targets to matchmake against, right? Right. So, like, you always have to be going towards that direction. Yeah. And you you guys are lucky because you probably have some of the biggest pool of players of any games out there, right? Yeah. And that's true. But once you start going down the direction of, of... um, putting too many options in your yeah. matchmaker, you segregate the population. Yeah. Really well, what I mean is if even you have that problem, yeah. it's even a bigger issue for right. you know, people with smaller, totally. smaller player bases. So what are the most, what are the important buckets then? Or however you want to filters or however you want yeah. to find it. Well, I mean, to use Warcraft 3 as an example, like one of the things that people wanted mm-hmm. was they want to be able to select what map. Yes. Right. So like, that's a really good example. So what we did in Warcraft 3 um, was you couldn't select what map what you could do instead and is we had um we always had a pool of ladder maps because that was another like design goal we had mm-hmm. but it's because when we looked at starcraft what inevitably would happen is the community would just default and pick one or two maps yeah and it really felt like that wasn't good for the long-term longevity of the game mm-hmm. even though players would do that i think it's one of those cases where you kind of want to actually force more variety yeah so we, we came up with a system of a matchmaking pool in Warcraft 3 where we had like, I don't know, like six or seven maps or something and, and they were all in the pool and it was trying to pick the right number so that, you know, you don't want a hundred because that's just too many things to get really good at and you don't want too few. So we kind of landed in that six to seven space. Um, but, you know, we did want to give players some ability to, you know, bias I think it and we had a couple different ways that we tried um, what we originally were doing was we actually had it set up so that you could pick like your favorite maps mm-hmm. uh, or or actually no let me think how that worked originally because we changed it um, so you could thumbs down or thumbs up maps it was actually based on kind of the TiVo idea mm. because TiVo had just come out so we had thumbs up and thumbs down and then you know as typical kind of first pass over design. So the way it worked was you're basically giving it votes. So mm-hmm. you're voting maps up and down. And then what we do is all the players um, that got put into the match together, we would basically just tally up all their yes and no votes and then pick from that pool. But what would happen is um, players felt like if I thumbs down a map and then I get put on, put on that map, that it was broken. Something's not working. Yeah. yeah, it just felt broken. So we actually changed the system. And what we did instead was implement as a veto system and just allowed you to veto like one or two maps out of the pool. Right. And just make sure that there was always enough maps in the pool that could never fail. Did you limit how many people could veto? 
Yeah, it was all. It was based on the amount of players in the game and the amount of maps in the pool. So okay. between one to three vetoes, I think you could get depending on the the map pool. But that was a good example, though, of again creating more critical mass. So by having that pool, you know, people aren't matching on a given map, which would then split out your populations. Yeah. But you're you're just so the only thing we really did in War Three was the the major game types, and even that. You know, we had to be really careful how many did we add. So there's one v one, two v two, three v three, and we we tried out, and there would be um, game types that would fail. Like I think um, I can't remember some of them, but we had a couple in there that just weren't getting enough numbers, and we'd kill off the the type of game just because you couldn't create the critical mass. Hmm. The um, shoot, I forgot what I was going to ask. Uh, oh, uh, did you have you ever considered? Um, did you ever give serious? I mean, I'm sure you considered it, but did you ever give serious consideration to random maps? Yeah, um, you know that's something I, I definitely think is really cool about the Age series. You know, mm-hmm. they've always embraced the, the random map stuff. Yep. Um, you know, I just think it's one of those choices. Yep. Like, um, I think there's real, there's real strengths of having pre-constructed maps. Yep. Um, you know, I think the random map thing just gets you different things, but has different downsides. So I don't know if I view either one of them as um, better. I yep. just, but I don't think you do both in the same game, though. Yeah. So I just think we just kind of made the choice of that's the direction we're going with and embraced that approach. It, it certainly seems like Blizzard has always tried to do the best job they could with being the custom map or scripted yeah. or what you want, you know, the uh, the uh, pre-made map uh, type games. Um, do you think that there's a balance? Was it maybe your concern with balance that led you down that? Just because, like, you can't control the experience. Well, so I mean, it just becomes. I mean, doing really good random map generation or procedural content any type is is a huge feature. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, there's just a lot that would go into it, and I don't think we're completely clear that it was going to be totally worth. Yeah. You know, all the effort. I think any game that. It has a significant procedural generation. I mean, I think it's very different if you're talking single player. Like yeah. single player, well, you know, Diablo, obviously, right? right. Um, anytime, you know, if you have a big single player focus, you have a lot more flexibility to do procedural stuff. But if you're talking multiplayer, like, those games need to almost start more as experimental games. It becomes harder to, like, justify, especially for, you know, games of the size mm-hmm. of, of, you know, StarCraft or WarCraft, because... Um, it definitely seems like it would add a lot of risk to the project for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and like I said, it, it's not immediately clear what you're getting out of it. I mean, it's not like it's going to add a lot more longevity to the game. Right. So, you know, we already have that. So. Yeah. So you already have that. And it, it definitely is going to become a game balance problem, you know? And I think, you know, especially the Starcraft series, you know, it's very much like speed chess, like people do not want random factors in that game affecting the outcome. Right. You know, obviously Hearthstone has that, but that's a different game. You yeah. know, with with StarCraft, you know, because it's so much on that based on player skill and that's what the game's about, I don't think random maps really go towards that design goal. Right, right. So since we've been talking about matchmaking and whatnot, what what was the um, what was the your conception of what you wanted to do different when you got to StarCraft two? Uh, I it was really just um, continuing to perfect the perfect that system and then you know, I know a lot of what there's like the thing that's really interesting. I think about StarCraft Two is um, I I think they actually have perfected that goal. Like they know how to like the thing about StarCraft Two that the matchmakers gotten so good 
you almost feel like you're playing your, your mirror twin in every game, mm. which now surfaces an entirely different problem, which is, I think, one of the problems that StarCraft II has is um, every game is super tense, which is what we thought we wanted. Yeah. But it actually it's, can be really exhausting. It's after, too, <laughs> yeah. too tense. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, now, that's interesting. So now there's this concept that um, I don't know where yeah. they're at, but I know is something that me and Dustin were talking a lot about before I left was... Um, you want some easy wins or... Well, starting to have matchmaking consider a play session. Uh-huh. You know, start thinking more at a meta level and really start tracking, like, what what is the player's last few games looked like? And right. yeah, if they're on a losing streak, maybe we should actually bias the matchmaker and give them an easier game or things like that. And I don't think they put any of that stuff in, but I think that's kind of the next... We're that the next level of thinking. Like, once you get to the place of, okay... Now we can, we can definitely determine player skill. We've solved that problem. Like, how do we now give someone a great meta play experience over a game session? And then I think the other really interesting area for matchmaking is when you start bringing in social factors, mm. you know, which was something that I would love to solve, you know, with whatever my next game is, assuming I do a game that's involved with co-op or competitive again, you know, like... Social factors meaning bringing in a group of people or... What do you no, mean exactly? factors of... Um, playing against people that have a similar sort of play style to you, you know, not just being skilled, but some players like to have no rush games or mm. some players, you know, are more douchey. <laughs> some players are, you know, like whatever it is. Yeah. So, you know, I feel like there's something to that also. Sure. You know, Riot obviously is in that space right now, but, yeah. but it's mostly because of the toxicity issue. But I think there's a, a friendly version of just trying to get people to play games with people that enjoy games in the same way. Right, right. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, so what about the um, sort of the ranking and leagues and ladders of StarCraft II? Because that seemed like um, there was a lot of effort that I could put into that. Yeah, and I thought that worked out. I, I, I really enjoyed that. But yeah, that there's good. definitely um, some things I think worked well and some things that didn't work as well and some things they're still modifying. But yeah, that was... Um, you know, like you, you look at because the bonus pool idea that was new for StarCraft Two, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, and the the big concept I think with Star Two was um, you know give people at a macro level kind of the sense of what skill they are, mm -hmm. maybe Bronze League or Platinum League or whatever, and that's probably not going to change much. Okay. You know, and then at a micro level, compete against you know a smaller number of players. You know, mm -hmm. like, you know, you kind of have your division and a lot of it really came out of uh, me playing in, you know, recreational sports leagues because right. that's how it feels there. And I think it works really well at a recreational level, which is what most people want out of their game. Yeah. Again, the super hardcore want a different experience, but I feel like the vast majority of the population want really what I think recreational sports leagues do really well. Yeah. And they chunk players, you know, at a really um, broad level in their skill divisions. And, you know, like I, for example, I'm in a silver league um, hockey division right. and unless I start you know unless I go to a whole bunch of clinics I'm probably always going to be in silver because yeah. you know, I kind of hit where my skill is for the amount of time I play so so I don't really think think about that where I'm really focused is within this season you know right. I want to do a good job right? I want to do a good job and hopefully yeah. we'll win our division yeah and you only can do that if it's a very limited number of players. Yep. Like you can't, you don't never really feel like you won in a population of a million players. Like, oh, this season I got to 90,612, right? Like that's just not a meaningful experience. So the concept was, okay, so you have your divisions and you have your broad skill thing. So that was kind of 
yeah, where that system ma- makes from. it feel local. Yeah, it's one of these things when I f- first saw the idea, the hard time sort of wrapped my head around like, okay, these these guys are my competition, but I'm not actually going to be playing these guys. Yeah. Uh, but I guess we'll see how it goes, and you know it works out okay. Uh, do you ever do you have a thing in there that if they happen to be online at the same time, you try to just nothing like yeah. that? Yeah, no. it just makes it that much more. I mean, the other thing about matchmaking is you know you don't want to add any cruft into it that you don't need. Yeah, I mean that's one of those things that it probably happens so rarely. Why even put the code in and have yep. it search for something else? But and I don't know they got got it from Star Two, but I, I I'm thinking they did because I feel like the Clash of Clans system is pretty much the Starcraft Two system. Yeah. Yeah, so. um, yeah. This is, I mean, this type of asynchronous competition. I mean, it's it's something that people need to like be thinking about now. Yeah. I mean, for sure, like because it's it's the only really way to pull this off. I mean, yeah. you just can't count on people being online. You know, all these all these systems you're describing are ways to get around the fact that we can't get people to sit down at the same time to play these games. Right. right? Um, you know, it's just it's just the best we can do. Um, uh, cool. Well. Maybe we start talking about WoW. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure how much we can get into it because WoW just seems it seems so big, yeah. and I know so little about. I mean, I played WoW, but uh, you know, for a few months essentially. But it's such a big thing, and even I feel like people who've been playing WoW for years, there's aspects of the game that they don't know about. You know, mm-hmm. um, so I'm not even necessarily sure where to start. Um, presumably, you guys are playing a lot of EverQuest. Yep. Right, a lot of requests, <laughs> and that includes you. I assume you got. You got I actually, um, yeah, I I was pretty infamous for how much EverQuest I played because I was playing it a, a ton during Warcraft Three development. Okay, so when Warcraft Three <clears throat> was being developed, um, pretty much my uh, my secondary job was playing EverQuest, and um, <laughs> okay. I actually ran one of the the top guilds across all service at EverQuest. Okay, so we had this guild called Legacy of Steel, mm-hmm. and you know. It was generally ranked in you know across all the servers in the top ten. And that so was you, one of the things that was interesting about the EverQuest community was uh-huh. everyone knew who the top guilds were. Huh. So there was that you had that competitive aspect to it that yeah. was like important to you. Uh, I don't know if that's what was important, but mm-hmm. I mean it definitely became a thing. Right. What like, was it that you liked about EverQuest that was like why why did you play it so much? I mean, there's a there's a few different elements. I mean, I think the thing about EverQuest is that once you get into the later game and you start having this experience where you're you're playing this co-op game and the roles really, really matter. I mm-hmm. mean, I think that was the, the first time I really had a game where you're playing with the same people kind of night to night or you, know, you kind of grow this online community of people you're playing with a lot right. and you really have to rely on each other. Uh-huh. And you get into these dungeons and later on raid encounters where... You know, it's this group co-op puzzle solving experience and you need, you need these folks to get better gear and, you know, kind of push yourself kind of up the ladder and, you know, become a hero in that world and, you know, develop a social online community and friends and a guild. I mean, I think that's obviously where all that, all the magic is. The problem with EverQuest is that, um, it's really hard to get to that part of the game and mm-hmm. you have to put up with a lot of kind of brutal mechanics to get there. So yeah. I think one of the things we definitely saw at Blizzard was those of us that did put up with it all and get to that part of the game saw something that, you know, we'd never played before. And it was kind of this really deep engaging experience and, you know, just felt like, okay, there's this huge opportunity if we can get more people to that experience. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, 
I mean, it sounds like you're describing what it feels like to be on a team, basically, yeah, totally. like with you know within it within a game. And you know, obviously, there are you know there's there's team modes and RTSs or whatever. But this is something that it's the long term aspect that's what's so important to it. Well, and the thing that's also different about it is is like I said, like the, the roles I think become mm-hmm. really important yeah. too. And that I can get really good at this. Yeah. Well, know? and. and and you have to rely on the other people to do their mm-hmm. roles, and that's where I think it is a lot more like a like a sport sort of situation, you know, like football. Yeah, you know, it's like if you're the quarterback, you have to do your job, and the running back does their job, and you all succeed together. Right. So, so when did you guys? How how quickly did you start thinking like I want to make like the the Blizzard version of this? Uh, I think we started having talks even back during Ultima Online days. Really? You know, because we, we all played a lot of that too. Uh-huh. That was during actually StarCraft development. <laughs> we online every night. Um, but yeah, it never. And then certainly during EverQuest, during Warcraft 3, there's definitely a, a crew of us that were increasingly starting to talk about, hey, that's a game we want to make for sure. It was like, oh, you know, almost felt like, hey, can we just stop Warcraft 3 and go make that game? And I, I just assumed after we finished Warcraft 3, that's probably what that team would have done. Right. But what ended up happening was um, our second team was working on a totally different game. It was a codename Nomad at the time. And, okay. And they ended up getting to a place where, you know, it didn't seem like the game was going to come together. So yep. we canceled the game. And then Alan was like, oh, well, let's have that team start making World of Warcraft. And first, I was kind of mad about the concept because I'm like, no, I want to do it with my team. <laughs> <laughs> But that's that's when we started it, and then Alan um, went over and you know started building that game with that team, and then you know the way it worked in that era of Blizzard was me and Alan pretty much we had lunch literally every single day, and all we did was talk design, and okay. we'd just talk about what's going on, you know, all the different challenges with Warcraft three, and then once WoW started up, we started talking about World of Warcraft a lot at lunch, and so you may not have been working on it, but you were aware of everything they were. Yeah, and I was involved at a really high level. Uh-huh. All the, the high level design, but mm-hmm. I definitely wasn't on the ground level for the first few years. Um, right. But even that changed because, again, because we, we really didn't have um, a deep level of design talent within the studio at this time. So, you know, I ended up doing design work even while I was on Warcraft 3. So, like, once they started doing the classes, like, Alan at first had this idea of, um, well, I'm going to give a different person in the studio a different class. You know, so I ended up, I was going to design the warlock and be the warlock class lead. And then he gave out other classes to other people. Um, that didn't work out very well. So right. warlock ended up being really cool and all the other classes were, yeah. So I ended up just taking over all the classes <laughs> and I was still doing Warcraft three development while leading the class design on, on WoW. So, you know, I, I was always kind of crossing over and, and that's kind of what my history of the studio was anyways. Like even as, especially once we started ramping up projects is that, you know, if there was a, a system that really needed me to be involved, then I would get involved even if I had a different game that I was working on. Like even once I transitioned off WoW, you know, I went back and really helped, you know, lead the design on the Dungeon Finder feature or, you know, recently went and redesigned the ranking system for Hearthstone. So I kind of always have done that even during, so during the WoW era, I wasn't literally sitting on the team, but I was still designing systems for them. Right, right. Um... So I'm trying to remember, I mean, WoW has changed so much over the years. I'm trying to remember sort of the state it was in back in 2004, is that when it came out? Yep. Um, and I, what I remember is some of the things that made it distinctive were it 
it enabled a lot of solo play, which was kind of unusual at the time. Mm -hmm. um, it um, it had a very light death penalty, which was also kind of a mm -hmm. change from EverQuest. Um, uh, I'm trying to think what else um, would have would have sort well, of probably the, I mean, obviously the level of pulse was very it was a very appealing game. I mean, the really um, central thing, which I think most people forget. Okay, but I mean. You, you could quest all the way to level 60. Like, even right. though EverQuest was called EverQuest, the way you actually played the game was you went to an area where monsters spawned and just repeatedly yep. killed the same monster. Which okay. is also how Ultima Online played. Yeah. Well, the, the World of Warcraft was the, the first time. The exclamation point was like, uh, yeah. that was World of Warcraft, right? That was like mm -hmm. one of the, the initial, because I, I definitely remember that. I mean, it was in like, Diablo 2 also, but. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay, fair enough. Um, but yeah, so that there was, if you wanted, there was a string of breadcrumbs that would take you. And that's and that was one of the discoveries early on with the development was, um, so we knew we wanted a lot more quests than EverQuest had. But still, the the thinking was that each zone would have some of these different quests to kind of move you around a little bit. Mm. But you would still end up doing a little bit of that grinding gameplay. So the idea we, we thought was going to happen was, okay, you go into the zone, you pick up some quests, and then once your quest log runs out you'll go off and just kill wolves for a few hours until you level up and go to the next zone. That, mm -hmm. That's kind of what we thought. But what happened is the moment you ran on a quest, the game felt broken because we trained players mm -hmm. to pick up quests from these exclamation points, go and do these different tasks. And then when their quest log is empty, they're like, well, what do I do now? Yeah. And it, it was not intuitive that you went off and grant, you know, just killed wolves. Yeah, yeah. Because we were all coming out from the EverQuest perspective. Well, of course that's how you play, because that's how you play EverQuest. But all these players that are coming into the game for the first time, they don't know that. So then, yeah, it's we interesting. Had to, we had to make the big choice. We're uh -huh. like, well, this is super fun. People really love playing like this. Can we commit to the content to like go we all have to the do way? Ten times the amount of quests that we yeah. thought we were going to do. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting because that sparks something I thought. Uh, that I, I saw talked about at last GDC, which was the Don't, Don't Starve people gave a talk um, about, um, you know, it was about the game. And they were talking about how early on, it's a game that's very much about the discovery and figuring out what to do with all the sort yeah. of crafting elements you come across. Mm -hmm. And early on, they had a tutorial that, you know, was sort of a series of, of simple quests to go, like, go, go dig up some, go get some berries, go get some twigs, go make this thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, inevitably that stuff will kind of run out. Mm -hmm. And what they would often see is that a lot of players, like, once they, once they start filling up their list, they would just kind of stand there and they have no idea what to do and then would kind of lose yeah. interest in the game. And they made the opposite decision right. you guys made. They're like, we're just going to cut that out entirely. No tutorial. We're just going to drop people in the world. Yeah. Um, that's kind of one of those... Good examples of like with this, with design aesthetic choices, it's often good to be at the extremes, yeah. right? To commit totally. fully to one specific thing and like everything else. And now we know that our game is about exploration and discovery. Right. Um, where you know, for for World of Warcraft, it's about you know we're building this this awesome experience through the through our world, through yeah. all our zones, through all the different levels, and mm -hmm. so on. Yeah, yeah. And like one of the central things we always would talk about with WoW is that the main character of WoW is the world. Okay. You know, it's like, which was very different than, you know, a lot of our previous games where, you know, we have, you know, these, we always have these big epic heroes and characters and the game is usually about them, you know, like Raynor and Kerrigan or you know, yeah. whatever. But with WoW, 
you know, the world itself is the main character, and that was really what drove a lot of those types of design decisions, is bringing you through the world. Well, I definitely have strong memories of moving from zone to zone, and suddenly everything changes. Yeah. Or taking those those Griffin flights, you know, mm-hmm. or you just, just, it's just purely seeing what, what was, you know, going beneath you, but it was, that was an experience. I mean, I, I hadn't played an MMO before, so, mm-hmm. like, that was, that was, you know, that's very memorable. Um, what, um, so, was there um, was there any doubt about making an MMO that had so much solo content, or did that seem very natural to you guys? Um, yes and no. Um, I mean, it was always really important because we felt like that was one of the huge weaknesses of EverQuest. Mm-hmm. You know, we felt like um, because they forced grouping, especially at such an early level, that that was one of the key reasons why people weren't sticking with the game because it was flushing all kinds of more casual people out. So we thought it was really critical that you could solo to 60, you know. And the thinking was um, rather than like what EverQuest would do is they just forced you to start grouping to advance. And okay. they felt like it was really important to their design philosophy because otherwise people wouldn't group because there's all this inherent friction to forming a group and having to work with other players. And if left to their own devices, players would just play solo. Now, that was the worry. Um, but we kind of challenged that and we're like, okay, well, we don't really think that's true. I, we think we can incentivize people to group rather than force them to do it. Right. And that was really the way we approached it. Yeah. Well, beyond the fact that people are different, yeah. right? Like it's, it's hard to make one, you know, it's, it's hard to, um, especially in a game that's, that's about, you know, developing a mass audience about like, um, dictating that this is the way you have to go through the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, what, um, but you, you, you know, you did still have the, the sort of basic kind of, you know, you, you got to work your way up to level 60 and at level 60, the game kind of changes somewhat. Yeah. Um, did you guys ever consider trying to like, just start there. If that was the thing that you cared about so much with, with EverQuest, about with EverQuest, like instead of just trying to like get people into that that part of the experience as quickly as possible. Um, no, because um, you also have to like we rewind when WoW shipped. There really wasn't much game beyond level sixty. Okay. I mean, the you game just, was one to sixty. Because you hadn't had time yet, or mostly. Um, you know, I mean, we when we shipped WoW. We basically had one raid in. It was a Nixia. Okay. Um, but you could have started with that, right? I mean, maybe this is just, like, hard to even... Maybe, first of all, maybe it's just a bad idea. But, like, um, if that was if that was the part of... If that was the park's experience that you guys were so excited about... But it wasn't just that. I mean, because, yeah. again, I'm talking about the grouping part, not necessarily the raiding part. Like, raiding okay. also, like, that's a graduation of it. Yeah. The thing that um, I think is really exciting about MMOs and things like WoW is um, is being in a world in a game where there's so many other players that are visible that yep. you interact with all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like one of the other things we used to talk about is like how powerful it is, you know, alone or, you know, it's like um, alone but together with other people, yep. you know? So mm-hmm. it's it just, because you're in these zones and you see all these players all over the place, even if you're playing by yourself, it feels more inherently social. Yep. And then what will happen is um, you will end up probably doing some accidental grouping because, yep. again, the way we designed the quest system was as much as possible make quests just better and easier with other people. So, you know, a lot of times, like, you roll up 
like here's a quest monster you have to kill, you know, like a boss or something, and someone will just hit you with a group invite, and then you'll just both beat them and then break apart again. So you're having like these these chance group encounters, right? And then invariably, at some point in your career, you're going to start going into dungeons, and and that, and then we're graduating now into that that teamwork thing. But we're not doing what EverQuest did, which is basically at one level range, it just all happens. I mean, we just allow you to have that experience whenever you're ready for it. Right. Okay. Um, and, you know, with the levels of 1 through 60, that gives you a lot of time to kind of be eased into the pool. Right. So you, you start them at level 60. Now it is kind of that EverQuest thing again. You're dropping everyone into the co-op teamwork experience. Right. You know, and you may not be ready for that at the beginning. And that's what we'd see, too. We'd see people that are very casual and, and they don't want to group at first. But it happens. And then even PvP, it'd be funny. Like, I, I remember, um, you know, one of our developers' moms, you know, was an infamous test case for us. You know, we always asked, Jeff, what's, what's your mom playing right now? What's she doing in the game? Because mm-hmm. she wasn't even a gamer. Right. She just started playing it. And then, but I think she got into the 40s and she started PvP. <laughs> it's just funny, you know. And I watch my kids the same way. And just everyone's different. Um, so the thing I think really powerful about WoW is at no point does it push you into something that you're not ready for. I mean, but eventually you'll probably try things out. You know, you know, battlegrounds might seem like the scariest thing in the world to you when you first start the game, but maybe at level fifty, you're finally like, you know, I'm going to try that out. Sure. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, so what? Um, so World of Warcraft came out. Obviously, it took off right away. What was? Um, were you at? Was it mostly just a content problem at that point, or were there? Or were there, were there other issues that um, you guys felt like you needed to fix? Well, I mean, honestly, yeah. it was kind of a mess when it came out. Like, mm-hmm. um, I mean, we had all kinds of server problems yeah. because we um, we did not expect it to take off as fast as it did. Right. You know, and we had all kinds of server problems. We're always having database problems. I mean, you know, so we had a lot of just technical challenges. So yeah. we had that issue. Um, then we also had the issue, like you said, of content and systems. So, um, I mean, we didn't know that, you know, the hardcore community was going to get to level 60 super fast, yep. but there wasn't really anything we could do about it to yep. get out in front of them. And, and we, we were pretty much behind the, the player's need for con- content for years. I mean, it really took a long time, and we had to be really um, clever about how to try to get content to the game sooner. Like, for example, Molten Core was a really good example. So that was really our first raid dungeon, mm-hmm. but we had to do it with very little content because, you know, so it's like how do we repurpose these characters and scale them in different ways and try to put in a raid with hardly any development. You know, so we had to do a lot of things like that. Um, we didn't have a PvP system in when the game first went in, but we knew we wanted to be a big PvP game, but we didn't really have any system. I mean, you could kill each other, but there wasn't like um, any sort of rankings or any battlegrounds or any of these ideas that we knew we eventually wanted, but it wasn't there. Um, like I said, there wasn't much in the raid game. I mean, there's there's a lot of issues. And then on top of that, you know, we already knew what we wanted to do for the first expansion, but, um, you know, the team... Team of the uh, team morale was not that great when we shipped the game. We actually mm-hmm. lost a lot of people. So, um, so the team also, you know, we lost I don't know a third to a fourth of the team, and we had to roll onto an expansion, and we're operating live product, and we never knew how to do that. So, yeah, the first two years were, were just utter chaos for us. They were just burnt out. 
essentially, or it's because just, it's like it's uh, was not an unsuccessful project. Obviously, like it's yeah. I, I can't imagine any it. I can't imagine anyone thought it was going to do better than it actually did. Um, no. <laughs> so no, quite the opposite. No, it was. Um, there's there's just a lot of toxicity toxicity on the team by the time we shipped. Just a lot of personality conflicts and things like that. So it's just yeah. low morale team, and there's a chunk of people that went off and formed Red Five, sure. a chunk that went off and did Carbine, and that all happened like in the six to twelve months after WoW shipped. While we're trying to do Burning Crusade, while we're trying to get you know live you know live service up and going running, so yeah, it was there was a lot of thrash in that first couple of years post WoW. So that must have there must be a sort of that period during the the middle of that decade where essentially you must have been the two or three years where you guys were just running just to stand still essentially, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, totally. Um, I assume that's kind of what happened to StarCraft Two, perhaps, or like you know just it was impossible to tackle bigger projects seriously. Well, what, I mean, one of the biggest things that happened in StarCraft 2 was, um, was, okay, so rewind to uh, 2002, 2003, you know, like a little bit over a year before WoW shipped, um, and that's when Alan left the company. Okay. So, so what ended up happening was, like I said, we, we really didn't have um, a lot of um, high-level game designer. Actually, we didn't have any like senior game designers. We had some senior like level designers, but right. no one else was like system designers. Um, it was just me and Alan. Wow. So when Alan left, wow, that was that a now was I'm that over a... StarCraft two and over World of Warcraft. Right. So, so what I had to do is, did you know that he was going to leave? No. So it must have been a shock then. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, Alan had. Um, He'd been slowly, I think, burning out for a long time. Like yeah. he was kind of infamous for when we shipped a product, he'd go on like a six month sabbatical from mm. the company and then come back and kind of get reengaged again. So he sure. he kind of done some trial <laughs> leave, you know. So so I didn't know in advance he was going to leave, but at the same time, you know, I think everyone knew at some point Alan was going to leave because you know he'd also stepped down from CEO after StarCraft. I mean, you know, so he'd been slowly weaning himself away from the company, but. I, I thought he would have stayed through WoW. That's what surprised me. You know, I figured he would have shipped WoW and then maybe leave after that. Right. Did you um, did you sort of officially adopt? Did you get, get sort of a more of an official leadership position after that happened? Or yeah, when Alan left, they um, promoted me to VP. So that's okay. when I became an executive at the company. Um, How did you feel at that point? Like, um, I mean, I, I was I was definitely excited to get my hands on WoW in the same way I got my hands on Brood War because mm-hmm. um, I was really involved with WoW. Like I said, I, I was designing stuff and, yep. you know, doing systems, but there were definitely areas that me and Alan were not aligned. Okay. And there were areas that, um, you know, I would argue with him and I couldn't convince him. So I was like, all right, now I can finally get in there. And, and I pushed through a shit ton of design right. in that last year. Like, it's actually pretty crazy if you go back through and you look at some of the features uh-huh. that people think of when they think of wow and a lot of those women in the final what were your big priorities there that year um i gotta think through it all i mean first of all um the game was only playable up through about level 10 okay so we i mean it's just phenomenal the amount of work that got done in that last year um good examples though like um the talent system for the classes was not in, and the, you know, all that got designed and at all last year. Not at all. They were just classes, but they didn't have any. Yeah, they no went up levels, and they just got some extra points. No, you got you got spells. Okay, but the sure. whole talent, the the way yeah. that you differentiated yourself, like okay, yeah. You know, 
all that went in. Um, the auction house went in. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, durability. The death penalty, like the death penalty in the game, was um, was you just teleported back to your blind point. There okay. Was, you know the whole death system that's in right now all went in. Um, you know most of the dungeons got put in in the final year. Um, yeah, there's just tons and tons of stuff. What was? Did you guys have an overriding theory about what to do with the the classes? I mean, you didn't. I mean, I, I'm not really a typical MMO player, but you you didn't seem to deviate too much from sort of the the, the trinity or whatever of, of of unit types. But did you have some specific thing you wanted to accomplish with the, mm-hmm. the class distribution? Yeah, a lot of things. No, I can I could talk for hours just on classes <laughs> in World of Warcraft for sure. Um, probably like one of the central things for me was um, I really wanted each of the classes to, to play very unique from one another. Mm-hmm. And I was really, um, especially with the melee, melee classes, because um, like if you look at EverQuest or I feel like a lot of RPGs, um, the spellcasters usually are really interesting. And then the melee classes just, you know, auto attack and, yeah. and just sit there, right? And, and that was certainly like EverQuest. So I really wanted like all the classes to, to be as interesting and as deep as spellcasters typically are. Right. So like a good example of the warrior is I put in that whole rage bar system, you know, and, you know, I kind of wanted every, every melee class to, to have that cool thing, but still live up to the fantasy of, of what you think of. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so like the warrior rage system, you know, I kind of got the idea from, you know, fighting games kind of have, yeah. kind of have a system like that. And obviously it's really different. Oh, wow. But that was kind of the, the starter inspiration. And then, you know, rogues with the energy and the combo system. So I, I just wanted every class to have, like, their gimmick. And in yep. a lot of ways, almost like, um, you know, how I view RTS levels. You know, okay. like I wanted them all to have a very unique sort of interesting sort of dynamic and play really differently from one another. What were the classes that you had a hard time differentiating or keeping, you know, like that there was too much overlap? Um, I mean, I, I think all of them ended up in a pretty good place. Right. Um, the one that I probably, um, I never felt like I cracked because I, I was the hunter. Like the hunter mm-hmm. has mana, but that's not what he originally had. Originally, he had this concept called focus. Okay. And the idea was that when you stand still, that it builds up. So okay. the idea is that you're kind of taking a sniper shot or something like that. But we never got it to work in a fun way. It ended up being mm-hmm. a very weird mechanic. And I tried some other ideas, and I finally kind of ran out of time with the hunter, so I just slapped mana on it. Right. That was a little disappointing <laughs> to me because I felt like there's something, there's a cooler idea there that I, I never got to. Okay. What about like two classes that were kind of filling the same role, and you just had a hard time? Well, you, you kind of always have, you definitely have that issue in WoW, you know, when you start thinking of the Trinity, right? Sure. So you have healers, you have DPS, yeah. and you have warriors. So. Or you have tanks, and invariably, you know, you want, let's say, the tanks. You want them to play really differently, yeah. but they need to be They're balanced with tanks. one another, yeah. right? Like you never want to end up in a situation of no one wants a paladin in the group because they don't tank as good as warriors. Yeah. So that's where all your challenges are. So the issues are always in the space of okay, they need to be just as good at raid tanking, but have totally different abilities. But you, then you'll end up with um, these mechanics that become very core and you have to find out find a way to put them on everybody like the place where it probably happened the most though actually is a really good example of what you're asking though is the shaman and the paladin mm-hmm. so when we shipped wow um you only could play a shaman if you're a horde and okay. you only can play a paladin if you're alliance 
which I think is a really cool idea for creative direction reasons, you know, because one of the other big things in WoW, which we could talk about is the Horde Alliance split. Like that, that was a huge decision that, you know, we had a really hard time keeping forever, but, but it was awesome. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, that was really cool about it was this idea that if you're an Alliance player and you see a shaman, then you know, they're, they're Horde, right? And then vice versa. And it, um, I think really stoked the fire between the two sides, Mm -hmm. you know, like, if you're on the horde, you just hate paladins yeah. because paladins equal alliance, and there's those jerks that bubble, and yeah. and they just become so ingrained with these two sides. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it was really cool, but the problem was that um, we we kept on having to give each other the, both those classes similar mechanics because, um, like especially in you know, the raid game or the dungeon game, we couldn't design anything that required a paladin because one of the sides didn't have and vice versa. Yeah. So we had often end up kind of giving each other very similar mechanics. Right. So we eventually undid that change. We eventually gave paladins to the horde and the shaman to the alliance, and that, that was the reason why we did it, because we thought it was a more important value to have all the classes be completely different. Right rather than preserving this idea that the, the sides have one unique class each. Right. But that was a controversial change again yeah. in the studio. But I could but see going Yeah, I could definitely see going either way with that where you're just like we're just saying like, well these are this is essentially one class, it's just called different things on the, the, the two different sides and yeah. it's like a thematic thing and like you could be okay with that, but you know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, so so that one we and you know, I, I think that was the right decision for the game. You know, many years later, I mean, it, but it is, it was really cool. Like during that era, when you know, it, I think it really helped to increase the uh, the animosity between the two sides, which is one of the things I think really makes WoW tick. Right. Is that whole red versus blue? Now, did you do try? Did you try to do something outside of you know instead of the Trinity, or is there a specific reason why that is just so standard? Um, I mean, it. it it really all hangs off the idea of tanks. Mm. I mean, that's that's where the Trinity comes and healing, obviously. But right. but tanking's probably the the culprit. Like the whole idea of aggro management mm. with bosses. Like the moment you put that mechanic in there, you're kind of creating something like that. Right. I mean, is there other versions? I don't know. Maybe, but um, I think it served WoW very well. Like I don't view it as a, a weakness. Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, having those roles is one of the things that, that makes the dungeon game and makes those teams feel really good. I think I think what would be cool is if you could define other types of roles. Right. You know, like something that was a thing in EverQuest that never really became a thing in, in WoW because of how the combat system worked what was like crowd control was almost like its own thing in EverQuest. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly on certain fights, like you really it started becoming a thing, almost like its fourth role. Right. So, but I think the challenge that you end up with that is what is the group size, and do you, and how many different roles do you require? Right. You know. So. So I don't know. Like, aggro is such an interesting concept in many levels because it's first of all it's very sort of explicitly gamey. Which, you know, is, you know, has its pluses and minuses. It's almost essentially like saying, like, we have this extremely simple AI system here, and we're just going to expose it to you. Mm-hmm. And it's really just like uh, a gameplay knob to, to mm-hmm. mess around with. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've certainly seen people argue about how 
you know, they feel like it's a system that should be a little more dynamic or um, a little more opaque or, you know, not so transparent. Mm-hmm. Um, but I often find that, like, there's a reason why so many games do it that way. Mm-hmm. And, like, there, you know, there's a, you know, there, there must be, you know, there must be a pretty good reason why you have this, this very trans- transparent, um, you know, mechanic that the, the whole combat sort of, like, revolves around. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, it, you know, creates those roles, right? right? I mean, it's, that's, I mean, you know, you think about like team sports, you know, going back to like the football example, I mean, those are all defined roles around the rules of the game that is actually what creates all the interesting decisions and creates the sport in the first place. You know, I think something like football is far more interesting than basketball when it comes to that. Right. You know, and I think that's what you're trying to create. I mean, and again, I think, you could totally do different systems and different mechanics, but I, I think it's just creating these interesting roles that actually is what creates that teamwork. Did was there um, what did you guys do some work in trying to sort of teach people about aggro? Because it is kind of one of those game mechanics that uh, is a little odd, mm-hmm. right? Like I think you can you can explain you know, hitting with someone with a sword and it takes away damage, you know, it, it hurts yeah. them. Shooting them with an arrow, it hurts them. You can explain a healing spell, all that stuff, like, I could probably explain to my mom yeah. and just, like, it's obvious, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas aggro is a little more... Yeah. It's not it's not quite so intuitive. Like, you can explain it, but it's just not, not so natural. Like, well, how did you is, explain that to people who never played an MMO before? Well, you, you don't really need to... Early on, it, it's actually more intuitive than you would think because mm-hmm. we're talking about it as high level. So we're talking about it because it becomes very important in the raid game. Yep. But that's not where you get introduced to it, right? Okay. I mean, it's it's a very simple concept in the sense of monsters are going to attack the person that did damage to them. Right. So I think the way that monsters behave, especially when you're just leveling up through the world or you know, partying with a couple of players, I, I think it's very intuitive. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I'm, if I hit this monster with you know, a fireball, he comes over and attacks me. And, you know, now, and if this person hits with a bigger fireball, it goes and attacks that person. So I think, I think you get an intuitive sense of how the AI works and the monster behavior. And then you start seeing mechanics, you know, like taunt is a really good yep. example, right? So, and I think taunt is fairly easy to explain because you've already been in the world. You've kind of seen that happen. Mm-hmm. So I press this button and it actually makes the guy come to me. So, so I think it's a very gradual process. I mean, certainly if we dropped you into the end game with all your UI mods and threat meters and mechanics, yeah, that'd be really overwhelming. But I, I don't think anyone ever comes into it that way. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'd like to hear a little about the UI modding stuff because I always thought that was really fascinating. Um, was that, um, when, did that, when did you guys think that you were going to try to do that? Like was that, uh, that was fairly or? early. Yeah, that was fairly early on. I mean, I think it was. Was that new? I mean, ever did EverQuest do anything like that? No, they they did something later. I think where they did some skinning stuff with XML stuff, but no, that wasn't really an EverQuest thing. Okay, <clears throat> it was just something. I think um, a lot of times at Blizzard, um, when things. Um, a reason a lot of stuff gets released to the public is there's a really strong culture internally of, hey, let's make a really good tool for our people, and right. then it ends up getting released. And I think that was kind of some of the early thought around it was, oh, we're going to script the UI in Lua, and yep. then it ended up being something that it was actually easy to be able to give to other people to, to extend. Right. But it wasn't like this big grand design vision from the beginning of, oh, we're going to have all these awesome mods. But, I mean, as as that became a really cool way to develop the UI, that idea kind of spawned. Yep. 
Well, it's definitely what inspired us to have um, the uh, the our interface be uh, you know written in Python and moddable in Civ four. I mean, that was in coincidentally the UI programmer on Civ four was Pat Dawson, who eventually yeah. you know came to claim to Blizzard, um, and you know so he was you know the first guy who kind of like saw what was going on and, and wow because he was a huge World yeah. Warcraft fan. Um, and, uh, you know, you guys took much greater advantage of that because I, there was a lot of mods that kind of um, eventually kind of got rolled into the game yeah. itself, right? Like, you know, the, the users come up with an idea yeah. and then it becomes popular and then it becomes kind of like an obvious yeah. thing, right? Um, I mean, and I was, I just, I love it when developers, developers do that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's definitely a love-hate relationship, though, because, I mean, there's... I think a lot of really obvious positives, mm-hmm. um, but you know, it also changes the game quite a bit too. Okay. And how, how so? Well, like a, a really concrete example is like once people are making UI mods that make it easier to tell what's going on in raids and easier to see cooldowns and easier to heal people. Um, now we have to balance encounters, taking assuming that people mm. have those mods. Right. So someone yeah. that comes in who's never who doesn't know anything about mods, it's like, geez, this game is really hard. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, and also if you and, and just think about, you know, if you watch, if you see a screenshot of someone in the raid game, it just looks retarded. Yeah, like all that shit they have up there because we we can't control that. I mean, UI modders can do whatever the fuck they want to our UI. So, <laughs> so you know, so I think there's those downsides. Um, is there a solution to that, or is that just how it goes? Well, I mean, there there definitely has been occasion where we've had to crush some mods because sometimes really? mods will cross the line. How do you do that? Is it just? I mean, I have no idea. How do you do that? <laughs> no, there's. I mean, you know, you can put in code to check for certain types of things, or you change things in the game code or the. the so that's no longer possible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was assuming that must be a huge technical issue to make sure that these mods keep working and they don't keep breaking all the time. Or yeah, know. but we. But that's not Wow's problem. That's not your problem. Yeah. yeah I guess so, so what's happened is other like Curse stepped in and made basically a mod uploader, and they mm-hmm. helped, you know it's allowed for a whole community presence to basically do that, and people upload their mods to this third party site, and they have their own client that keeps all your mods updated, and yeah. But yeah, it's it's a lot of work, but it's not Blizzard work. <laughs> yeah. That's the mod community has to deal with all that. Um, you know, like um. The other thing, the other downside of mods is sometimes players will put in mods that um, have, I think, negative psychological effects. Like uh, another really good uh, mod that I, I don't actually like is Gear Score. Oh, yeah, I've heard about this, yeah. So, Gear Score, um, you know, you can mouse over somebody, yep. it gives you basically, it evaluates their equipment. Yep. And which seems really cool, except for the thing that happens then is if you. When you get into like a match made dungeon group, you just boot all the people that have low gear scores. Yep. Which now, how do those people get better gear? Right. So you know that like that's a good example of a mod that on its surface seems like just this cool innocuous mod, but I think has you know big social damage to the game. Yeah. Wow. Um. So. So we you know so WoW's come out. It's doing very well. You, you know, it takes you kind of, it takes you guys a while to sort of recover from, you know, recover from success, I guess. Um, and, uh, uh, you start making expansions at this point, you're essentially the head of design at Blizzard, mm-hmm. right? So, um, I guess this is a whole nother part of your, of your career that maybe worth talking about a little bit because at this point, presumably you're going to start building a 
pure design department mm -hmm. at, at Blizzard. You want to talk a little bit about how you did that? And well, it, it, again, it started really when Alan left because um, because I was in this situation of, you know, I'm basically the only senior slash lead system designer over two gigantic games. Mm -hmm. um, now I really had to figure out how to hire and train game designers. Like me and Alan had made some attempts previous to hire game designers and I don't think we tried hard enough, but we never really found someone that was worth bringing in. So we just kind of figured, well, you know, can't hire game designers. That's just not. It's just too hard. Too hard. Yeah. You know, they won't adapt to the Blizzard culture or whatever, right? It's but a big. It's a big challenge. I don't. I don't know how to hire game designers. Yeah, it's it's not easy. Yeah. Um, but so what? It, but I. Well, once Alan was gone, I, mm -hmm. I just didn't have a choice. Yeah. So now I basically just had to figure it out. Yep. And. You know, one of the first things I fear I had to do is I, I have to be willing to make some risky hires. Yep. So, so you know, I went out and and started hiring external people. Some people that were lead designers of other companies, some people that were mid level, some people that were just in the game community. And so, were you, would you just kind of you're like these are some of the games I like. I'm gonna try to figure out who's the people in charge. No, of them I wasn't. Or? I wasn't quite that targeted because mm -hmm. um, Blizzard. You know, we get plenty of resumes, sure. so I sure. was just picking through the ones that I had. I wasn't yeah. actively targeting yet, but um, but what I, I figure I really had to do was start talking to a lot of people. Yeah. You know, because you know, like just start interviewing and yeah. start talking to people, and you know, there's definitely a lot of people that I just didn't think were going to work out, but there was enough that I'm like, you know what, I'm going to take a shot on this person or that person, and you know, like. You know, my first three people that I hired onto the WoW team, um, two of them, you know, ended up being really, really successful and one person ended up leaving. But the other two, like my first two hires, one is Tom Shelton, who's the game director right now. And the other one is Alex Afrasiabi, who's the creative director right now. So what did you like about them great. when you initially hired them? Well, Tom, he was, um, he, he was already like a lead game designer over at, um, Origin on the mm. Ultima Online series you know, okay. that was still going on. Like he wasn't there all the way back. Like he had actually come out of the Ultima Online community, mm -hmm. became a designer within the studio and then moved up until he was leading their expansion sets. But you know, Ultima was much older at this point. You know, this, it, you know, like wow was already out Ultima. I don't even know what its subscription base was. It sure. was under a hundred thousand. So he had definitely had, you know, cred in the MMO community, had design experience you know, like the only way I think you can identify game designers is just talk about games. Yeah. And I think what happens is um, a lot of people that are really good game players get confused as game designers, yep. you know, and it really comes down to how do they discuss the game? Mm -hmm. You know, do they just know how to exploit it and play it or are they identifying the underlying systems and what's happening within the game to, to create the play experience? And, you know, you talk about enough systems and you can see where people's instincts are and do they have a sense of that, even if they're junior or don't have experience, right? Like, do they talk about the game like a game designer? What do you, I mean, what, is there any, can you be more specific about the type of things you often listen for? Or, or do you have specific questions that you, you would use to prod that? Oh, yeah. People? Like, I don't know. The way I always look at it, well, I always just want to find common ground. Like okay. that. So I'll just talk about, like, what are your favorite games? What have you been playing? And then I just try to find, okay, where are the games that I also have a deep experience with? And then just talk about the game, you know? And, and you know, like, what are the things that they're talking about? Like, like a really infamous case was um, I interviewed this one guy that um, we were, you know, taught, it was during the era that Shadow of the Colossus came out mm -hmm. and Zelda Wind Waker was also out, right? And 
they're similar games in certain ways and obviously very different in others. And um, we ended up talking about both games. And, you know, and I was asking him which he thought was the better game and why. And um, he was going to hang his hat on Shadow of the Colossus, which, um, and because he felt like the combat and the mechanics were, were more interesting. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's not what I think is distinctive about Shadow of the Colossus. Right. But, yeah. and, and that's what I mean. Like what he really, he just was emotionally excited about the game because yeah. there were these big titanic monsters. But he didn't know how to communicate it. Right. And, you know, he was going to hang his hat on the gameplay and the combat mechanics. And then when I start picking at it, you know, it, it kind of unraveled on him. You know, yeah. Because I'm just like, okay, well, what was interesting? You know, well, don't you think it's, you know... Like, how did you feel like the controls were? And, you know, like, became very clear very fast that he wasn't really a game designer. He just really enjoyed the game and didn't know how to, you know, talk about it. So, like, that's an example. But then you talk to me like Tom, and he can break down systems, and he can talk about things in a really intelligent way and just seem to get it. Like, I remember one of the, the things that I asked him about, which he had a really you know, really identified the problem, you know, like, can you identify the problems of, I'm going to propose this system to you. What do you think the pros and cons of that? And how would you design it? You know, one of the things I was actually just getting ready to put into the game or trying to figure out how to do it was the rest system. And, um, and wow, you know, and that was the system, you know, and they had actually done this bonus experience system called the power hour and Ultima online. And we okay. ended up talking about that and, you know, I felt like he really understood where I wanted to go and wow, and really saw the downsides and the pros and cons. And that was like one of the areas I remember from that interview. I'm like, okay, I should really take a shot on this guy and bring him over. And he came over and, um, you know, slowly took the class, you know, took the classes over as I was working on other stuff. So he came in, worked on classes, worked on the talent system, um, was doing a lot of trade skill stuff, designed the auction house, you know, so right. all those things. And now he's the game director. So I'd be curious to hear how you feel like you've, you know, hopefully you have, but like how have you learned to improve? Because it is, it is hard to find designers. How have you learned to improve over the years mm -hmm. trying to, you know, as you, as you talk to them? Like when, presumably there were some cases that didn't work out. Mm -hmm. What would it, do you think you could have seen that coming or is that just inherently part of the process? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's a way to, perfectly hire anyone, not, not yeah. just game designers, like any sure. sort of employee. I mean, you know, like you're always going to have things that don't work out or people change or they didn't adapt to the culture. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. like but I, has, okay, maybe I'll ask this, this, uh, ask this another way. Has your process changed over the years? Um, I mean, I think it's evolved. I don't know if it's meaningfully changed. I mm -hmm. think, um, you know, I've added pieces to the process. Like, for example, um, something I know we started doing a lot more of is like customized designer tests that we give to people. Really? Um, okay. And just kind of evolve those tests. What do those What do those look like? Um, it's they're different by discipline, but you know, usually it's kind of we ask some different questions. How would you approach designing this thing or another thing? Like, for example, quest design is a really clear one. I mean, we'll, mm -hmm. we'll actually give you quests that we want you to design, and you know how to you know, develop a character, what are the game mechanics? And, you know, we'll send out kind of these design tests. And what that's really trying to ferret out is, um, I feel like, especially at the junior to mid level, um, I can't tell if they're worth a phone interview from the resume. Okay. You know, sure. obviously yeah. if they have, if they're senior or above, they probably have enough game credits. So it's a little more obvious, but at those lower levels, 
Yeah. Like, and I'm not going to phone interview every single person. So it's really a way to get at that first calling of people. Like, yeah. You know, so like I almost always like require, you know, the resume, the design test and a cover letter, you know, or the front end. Like I won't even look at a resume if I don't get a cover letter. Right. Because the cover letter is like that first test for me because uh-huh. that's where they're going to talk about themselves and talk about why they want to work for Blizzard and what they think they're going to do. So again, uh, like that's just part of that first packet. And then from there, Are you- that's a series of interviews. Up to, you know, up to the, you know, I guess your last year at Blizzard, were you still involved? Were you involved with every design design hire there? Not, I didn't, over time, I'd gotten to the place where I was, like, by the time I left, I was probably only involved in senior designer hires. Right. But still, senior game designer and above, I was still involved in. Yeah. So what about the mentorship mentorship aspect of that? So, presumably early on, you know, you know, you, so you, you know, you start hiring designers, mm-hmm. but now this is a new thing at Blizzard. You now have people yeah. there who are just designers. Like, how did you make sure that like they were able to integrate in the, into the culture and like, you know, mm-hmm. not, because presumably there maybe were some people at Blizzard who were a little apprehensive about how this was going to go. Oh yeah. No, I mean, for sure. Like even on, um, like another good example, just on the wow design team, um, when I came over, you know, after Alan left, I also ended up bringing over the whole design staff from StarCraft II because mm-hmm. we just needed the extra people. And I think there's always this fear of, oh, who are those, who are these new people and why do we need them? And are they going to take my job? And, you know, there's all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I had to get people to the place of, can this person make your game better? Isn't that the goal? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, People need to stop worrying about how is this guy going to encroach on my territory or is he going to do my job or is he going to take away my promotion and just be focused on the game. What's going to make the best game? This guy is a subject matter expert in this thing. Wouldn't our game benefit from that? And, you know, and eventually everyone kind of got to that place. But I think that's the first thing is, yeah, getting everyone culturally accepting and bringing people on. But that was not the case at first. There's a lot of hostility to some of those early hires. But, and, and that's the trick. I mean, those people... Also, you know, my entire credibility is going to hang off off some of those early hires. So I yeah. need to make sure they're successful because if they're successful, then it's going to be easier the next wave of hires than the next one. Did you, um, did you do, so how did, was the, did you have a specific like mentorship process in mind for them or you were just, you know, yeah, very no. careful that they didn't end up in a bad situation? Well, the only way I know to mentor designers mm-hmm. is to design stuff with them. Right. I mean, I don't really know of a different process. So, I mean, I guess you started off having lunch with Alan yeah. regularly, right? Talking right. about design process. So, presumably now you were kind of doing the same. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So, really, for me, it's the, the, like I said, the only successful way, every single designer I can think of that I've mentored at Blizzard that's successful, it's because I can point back one to three to five things that I literally co-designed with them. Right. So, you know, work through, you know, walk, work through the process from beginning to end. Yeah. You know, so with Tom, you know, he came in and, you know, we were designing classes together, auction house, talent system. And, you know, over time and, and, you know, I think all those guys too, like if you ask them, they'll, because they spent enough time with me on systems when they go design another system, they already know what I'm going to say a lot of times. Like they, they kind of have me in their head and they know, okay, Rob's going to say this or that. And here's how to approach this thing. Yeah. Now how much of that? And then it just expands, right? Because now once I have all these other game directors that they can train their guys themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So how much of that is, you know, helping sort of teach them 
can compare it to helping them essentially get on the same page, know what your priorities are. Mm-hmm. And like, there are good designers who are, you know, are both talented, but they're not going to make a good game together because they're pointing in different directions. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's true. I mean, obviously um, I think there's always the culture fit issue. You know, there's, there's been people that I've interviewed that I think are talented game designers, but I don't think we work with them blizzard because of the way we approach things, you know, like, like, you know, I did my game values talk a while back and yeah. uh, that was, that's, I think a good example of that. Like, you know, blizzard and valve both yeah. make very, very successful games, but they have very different design values and design aesthetics, yeah. you know, and I don't know if a blizzard designer would do well in valve and vice versa, yeah. but they can both be very talented designers. Right. So, so there's certainly that issue, but, um, but I think, one of the other things I've kind of learned when it comes to the mentorship stuff, though, is just because someone's a talented game designer does not necessarily make them talented at mentoring, though. And that was another mistake that I kind of made during this kind of process because I just assumed once 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 I made someone, you know, once I was able to train someone into being a lead designer at Blizzard, that they can then do the same thing with their guys, and that has not been the case. And that's actually been one of the places where I think Blizzard's been struggling in recent years is that next tier down hmm. because I think they have great game directors, but a lot of those guys actually have not been as good at developing their guys. So what do you think is the answer there? Well, um, are it, people specifically for that? You can't, they know. can't, they can't all be like that, right? Like yeah, some people I, probably are good designers, but they're not, they're yeah. not built to be a mentor. Yeah. That, I mean, if I was still at blizzard, this would be still the thing I'm trying to crack. Right. Like, yeah. I, I don't know what it is because, um, I think for me, one of the ways that I've been successful is that, um, you know, a very high standard and, um, you know, I think I'm very good at explaining, walking people through things and, um, and, you know, I, you know, I'm very good at, I think at working through designs with people and showing them thought process and getting them there. And, and I also think, um, I'm very direct and very honest. Like that's one of the areas where, where I see some people go wrong is that, mm. Um, I think the game industry is filled with a lot of really nice people and, and I think, um, that makes for really good work environments, but it's not always good for teaching. Yeah. You think about teaching, you need to be willing to tell people they're doing things wrong a lot. Yeah. You know, if, if you probably think about like, who are the most influential teachers in your life, they probably are some of your harshest critics because that's how you end up learning. You know, you don't, you don't learn by just getting pat on the mat all the time. And what I've seen happen with a lot of kind of the design talent at Blizzard, they think they're doing a great job. And then when I talk to their boss, they're like, oh yeah, he's got all these challenges. And I'm like, well, does he know, does he know that? about that? Yeah. And, and I think that's a real key thing. You have to be willing to be really direct and honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, to me, like seeing games clearly and seeing your works clearly is such an important part of games because game development, because, um, you know, unlike, uh, you know, I don't know, a movie or a piece of art or a book, it doesn't just sit there and you can look at it and you're like, okay, I'm happy with it. Like, mm-hmm. you do something and then it's kind of a mystery. Like, you actually have to seek out whether this thing is working or not, mm-hmm. right? And um, so, you know, if you're not if you're not willing to, to find, you know, to find that out, then, you know, you're going to have a problem as a designer. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Um well, maybe we should get to StarCraft 2. Okay. Um, so, I guess eventually you finally were able to, you know, uh, Blizzard was able to start moving towards StarCraft 2 again once things kind of got mm-hmm. settled down a little bit. 
Um, the um, was there was there a was, was there a specific goal? Uh, you know, outside of it's been ten years. <laughs> like, uh, what was what was the main thing you were trying to accomplish with StarCraft Two? Um, I mean, I think. <clears throat> We're excited to go back to StarCraft um, because, um, like, I don't know, I'll rewind for a second back to Warcraft 3. Like, one of the things we were trying to do with Warcraft 3 was really um, differentiate the gameplay from mm -hmm. what we had done with StarCraft and with Warcraft 2. You know, because StarCraft really was kind of a sequel to Warcraft 2, just in a different universe, right? But very similar sort of game mechanics. And we really want to change that up with Warcraft 3. And we almost felt like we were differentiating the franchises a little bit. And, you know, we didn't know if we'd ever go back and do Warcraft 4 or whatever. But it felt like we're kind of taking that more towards an RPG thing. And then StarCraft is exciting to go back and re-explore that old sort of um, fast-paced, action RTS, economically driven sort of game. So we're, we're definitely excited to kind of jump back into that. But, you know, see what else we can do with it. Um, and I think... Um, you know, we had to figure out again, what was that DNA? Like what were, you know, and that's always the challenge of the sequel. Like, what are you going to change versus what are you going to keep the same? Mm -hmm. You know, like that's always a huge challenge. Yeah. And then, um, you know, we had very grandiose visions for what the single player was going to be, which mm -hmm. weren't fully realized, but there's a lot of cool stuff there. So, um, but I think one of the biggest challenges with star two was because, um, the team had been going for well over a year. Um, most of that without really any design guidance whatsoever. So the team... What, they were, they, what were they doing? Well, kind of the the idea was when... was make a new engine and basically make StarCraft 1. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if... You know, that way... That would be a good base to have all the technology, have the editor again. And then once I came back onto the team, we'd then figure out what Start 2 was. And the yep. thinking was, too, that would... Because that ends up being a really solid design doc for anyone because sure. that way they don't have to ask me questions. They don't have to be going off to the weeds, just make the first Starcraft. And then the thinking was, you know, maybe we'd even release it kind of like, you know, Counter-Strike Source or something hmm. like that, you know, like That's right. you know, release yeah. it in the new engine. Um, but, you know, that's not the most exciting thing for game developers to do for a year. So invariably they were trying to do new things and generating mm -hmm. design documents and getting attached to ideas. And that was one of the biggest challenges when, you know, I went back onto the team is, okay, like, you know, which of these ideas are right, going back to the drawing board on things and just trying to get the team going in the right direction on some of the stuff. So, but, and, you know, I think... You know, I, obviously it was the right decision for the studio because WoW was really successful. But mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think it hurt StarCraft II a lot. You know, I think it caused a lot of thrash. And it's one of the main reasons why the game took so long to make was because we spent that year plus, you know, without design and then having to, you know, now we have this team that's going in one direction and now has to go in kind of a different direction. And I don't know, it was challenging. Yeah. So what were you? Um, so once you got on the team, what did what were the first type of things? What were the first things you wanted to accomplish? Uh, I gotta think back. That's. Uh, I mean, this, this is not actually so long ago. <laughs> yeah, but they all blend together. Yeah, I guess it's so. actually longer than you think. Yeah. I mean, it's. Um, it ten, I guess it could be. Yeah, it's ten years. Ten years, yeah. <laughs> Jeez, all right, never mind. Yeah. So. Um, 
I mean, a lot of it was, um, you know, figuring out what the units were going to be for each side um, and then figuring out what was going to be the new big thing in single player. Like those were some of the big things to try to figure out. You know, we had this whole idea for this whole story mode concept for a single player. Mm. And, you know, we ended up not even working on that until like the final year. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of talk about it. And then... Now, you know, StarCraft is such a... It has such a... Um, you know, the, the, the sides are small. They have like 12 units apiece, right? Um, and... Um, the um, and I remember we've talked about this some before about how you didn't want to just add stuff to the game. You, mm-hmm. you had to you wanted to if you're going to add some units, you need to take some out mm-hmm. um, because you wanted the same sort of level of complexity. Um, was there like a high level goal for what you wanted to do? I mean, you don't you didn't want to just sort of randomly pick the units to get rid of and add more ones. Like yeah. what what were you trying to accomplish? Um, like a, I guess the, like some sort of different feel from StarCraft One, right? There has yeah. to be some. Well, I mean, the thing I think we really want to accomplish was um, we wanted to recapture a lot of the, the pacing and excitement of the first game, mm-hmm. but, you know, change up the meta quite a bit so it feels like a, a new experience. You mm-hmm. know, so it's like, um, you know, reimagining StarCraft, you know, 10 years later. So, um, and you, you can do that by changing, you know, I don't know, X percent of the units. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, and I actually remember, um, you know, one of Sid's rules that, that I thought about when I, because I talked to him during StarCraft development, it was something that I started trying to apply at Star 2, which is that whole one-third proven, one-third improved, one-third new. And mm-hmm. that was kind yep. of the way I kind of thought about the races in a lot of ways. And, and I do exercises with the team, too. You know, like, what what are your top five units that you can't imagine this race without? Sure. And, what's the iconic thing? Yeah, exactly. Thing. So, like, that was a good place to kind of start. Of, okay, well, let's see if we can keep those units. What are yep. the units that people, you know, think they would shoot in the head and, you know, kind of go from there. So, right. But it, it was a lot. It's a very iterative process. I mean, we... Um, and the thing I think was good because that team had such good tools and they were really good at, you know, being willing to try things, you know, there's definitely all kinds of units that got put into the game that eventually got killed. Mm-hmm. You know? So there was kind of that, that wasn't something we really were able to do as much in Starcraft or even War three, you know, it's like we had to feel really good about putting a unit in, but in star two, I think there's a little more experimentation. Yep. Um, what, uh, Hmm. When you were so, and also when you were designing this game, I mean, StarCraft had had a pretty interesting history at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, crazy things were happening in South Korea mm-hmm. with StarCraft, right? Like, how much did that background affect the decisions you were making at this point about what to do with StarCraft? It, it um, I think it made the team very timid, is what okay. it did. Like, yeah. I don't know, like, I think it made it very hard to try to diverge too much from the original because it was, it was so successful, you know, and especially in Korea, you know, it's this huge e-sport game and, um, you know, there was so much anticipation, especially in Asia for that game to come out Mm -hmm. and the team didn't want to let them down, you know, and it's like, you know, we used to always call it, it's like trying to make baseball 2.0. Yeah, sure. So I think what that did was it created a lot of fear Mm -hmm. and I feel like there's a a lot of decisions that were very um, challenging to push through the team because the team was afraid. And I'll I'll give you a really micro one that I I find kind of interesting. 
So in both uh, StarCraft and in WarCraft previously, um, when you group selected units, yep. you would only get a limited yep. number, right? Mm -hmm. So in StarCraft, you could group select 12 units max. Yep. So if you had like 50 Zerglings, you'd have to like group select them in smaller Multiple groups, groups, send them yeah. off, and then, mm -hmm. and then select them. So one of the things I want to change in Star 2 was get rid of that restriction. Yep. And my reasoning was that it just, I felt like RTS games and the genre had evolved to the place where users just felt, it just felt like the UI was broken. Yeah. You know, people didn't understand why that was there. I think people forgave it in earlier games. Mm -hmm. And now the thing was, you know, like that is one of those decisions though, where it does create, the game is a little bit more tactical mm -hmm. because you have that limitation. Yeah. And you could also argue that it even has game balance ramifications in the Zerg versus the Protoss because Protoss have less units and, yep. and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't really feel like it was that load bearing. Uh, it was like, you know, it, it is going to be a little different, but I just think, you know, we put this in and then we just designed the game knowing that now we have unlimited selection. But there's all this fear that that was the secret sauce of Starcraft was mm -hmm. we, we can't undo that. And I, I literally had, I, got, I was getting pulled into meetings over a period of six months before I finally got them to put in unlimited selection. I mean, it, it was crazy. I mean, yeah. it's just a good example of just, yeah, that is. <laughs> yeah. But that little that, micro decision, I mean, took months before it finally. Yeah. Went. Because certainly for most franchises that were successful, but not don't have this sort of crazy fan base, uh, in one place that this seems like kind of an obvious thing to at least try out right yeah. like maybe it won't work out but um, you know games you know technology improves <laughs> you know your the UIs are supposed to become easy supposed to become easier to, to yeah. handle right mm -hmm. um, so wow that's, that's interesting I, I remember uh, from uh, Dustin's talk a few years ago at GDC um, about the sort of Starcraft as an eSport and he talked a lot about how the um, you know, even just to the, you guys spend a lot of time thinking about the visual appearance of units and like how, um, how that they were, how they were going to look at, you know, in to people who were watching the game as opposed to playing the game. Mm -hmm. Like how, how did you, um, how was that part of your design process? Um, I mean, that, that's very, um, organic. I mm -hmm. mean, that's, I mean, that team, well, really all the Blizzard teams, but that team, you know, had such veteran great artists on it. Mm -hmm. that it was very easy to kind of do that because the artists already want that. I think the challenge that the harder challenge is the other issue, which is um, uh, like team color is a really good example of something that the artists never want to put in much team color as the designers do. <laughs> yeah, I've had those. I've oh man, I've had those arguments so many times. <laughs> So, so that, that's an interesting one. Another one is um, trying to figure out how to deal with flying units in, uh -huh. a, in a 3D top-down sort of game because um, where they're at in space is not where they're actually at because they're offset yep. and isometric angle. So mm -hmm. like that's another tough one to, to crack with the artist. So, so those, I think, are the harder artistic problems. But telling the artist, hey, we want, want you to make really cool units with cool effects that is fun to watch, I mean, that's... That's easy. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. If yeah. anything, actually, the opposite problem is, again, the, the interesting one, which is uh, getting them to dial a special effects back because you can't tell what's going on in combat. Yeah, well, this is, yes. I mean, this is sort of what I want to hear about is, like, you know, what, what, what discussions were you guys having in terms of, like, 
you know, we know people are going to want to watch. People, watching this game might be just as important as playing this game. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what design decisions are we going to make to try to, you know, boost that up, right? Yeah, I mean, most of those, though, were still going to be... It wasn't really adjusting the game mm-hmm. for a spectator. It was more aimed at how we're going to develop a really cool spectator mode. You know? Okay. Like... You know, and we had all kinds of grandiose ideas with spectator mode and, you know, it's going to be really smart about showing you the right area of the map and it's going to have really interesting leaderboards that keep, you know, keep you up to date on what's happening. I mean, that's where we thought more about that stuff, not really of how we're going to design these units differently so they're more interesting to watch. Like there really wasn't much put into that. Right. Um, So what are your thoughts about esports in general? Uh, as they've emerged, I mean, StarCraft has has done well as an esport, mm-hmm. um, and the MOBAs have done, you know, yeah, it's incredible. It, we don't we don't know where the top is at this yeah. point. Um, like, what um, are they are they the perfect game for an esport, or would it, if, if you tried to design e for esport from scratch, like like is that game not made yet? Uh, probably not made yet. I mean, you know, it's it's definitely incredible watching esports becoming bigger and bigger and I think it's obviously great for the game industry um, but I definitely still feel like it's in its infancy mm-hmm. you know I think um, was there a specific reason why it became like what was the um, uh, I guess the the actual revenue justification for um, putting a lot of effort into making StarCraft and esports like did you did you guys feel that that would end up selling a lot more copies or is there um other stuff to consider like well yeah the economics right now are you have to look at mostly as marketing i think okay um i think riot's probably trying to change that where there's actually going to be a, a real um, ecosystem and revenue to be made off the, the sports and the broadcasting itself. But, uh-huh. but I don't really think that's a big thing right now. And it certainly wasn't the thinking of Blizzard. It was more, hey, this is something, you know, we, we just always had a big belief in, you know, community engagement, uh-huh. you know, and what are the different ways that, you know, we can make our games last as long as possible and esports is a, is a really good example of a way to do that so what are what are the what are the design aesthetics of like the perfect esport game um i mean i think the easier way to talk about it is you just talk about other competitions and sports and which things are mm-hmm. good i mean there's certain sports and certain competitions that televise really well and there's certain ones that, that don't right and i think it's that's kind of where you start you know it's um the problem I think with most of the esports right now is um, is unless you already have played the game quite a bit, I don't feel like it, it's easy to really get in and start watching and understand what's happening. Sure, and, and that's just because the games are really complex and they aren't really conducive to that. Um, you know, I think that's one of the things really interesting watching Hearthstone, which was not designed to be an esport, mm, but yeah. but strangely enough is very popular on twitch and i think that's one of the reasons because it is such a simple game and it's so easy to follow like it doesn't demand that you have a tremendous amount of deep knowledge of the game to understand what's happening like i think league of legends or starcraft 2 does yeah i I bet there's a lot a lot of assumption a lot of people are assuming that a game needs that complexity to be competitive enough to be an esport um but but yeah i mean it's it'll be interesting to see like if there there's if you know, if a game that's more transparent and simple, 
you know, who's able to do ultimately do better than, you know, say the MOBAs for something that's more, you know, action based and frenetic yeah. and whatnot. Um, now, I'd be interested to hear what your, your thoughts are about MOBAs in general. I remember when we, when we first met, which was, I guess, probably around 2006, one of the first things you told me is I should download this mod called Defense of the Ancients for Warcraft 3 <laughs> and, and, and check it out. Um, so you guys were obviously very aware yeah. of what was going on with it. Um, so where, what, um, why was there not, why, why, um, why was there not a Blizzard mm -hmm. MOBA started back then? I mean, honestly, it's just development bandwidth. Yeah. I mean, like you said, we were aware of it when yeah. it was getting really popular. Um, you know, I actually did have an, kind of an official sit down meeting with the other kind of execs of the studio and said, Hey, we should really talk about this. And we walked down the path and talked about what it would take. And, um, we also actually brought ice frog out and talked to him a bit too. But, uh -huh. And we just, um, you know, made the decision that we just didn't feel like we could take it on and make it successful at the time. The timing was pretty bad yeah. in the sense that you guys were still dealing with World of Warcraft and had yeah. you know, been starting the, the next versions of your you know, yeah. huge Star other... StarCraft II was yeah. already a couple years down the path. Yeah. Diablo three was... Yeah, and that was another thing that was getting ready to happen too. We were getting yeah. ready to bring Diablo three down to Irvine and it just didn't feel like at that time we could you know, do a Blizzard job on a Dota game. Yeah, it would be a major risk. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, it's... It's been a fascinating thing to to see, and I remember at the time we when talking about you know I guess seven years ago you know we talked about all of the kind of odd design the, all of the design elements of those games that were you know were inherited from Warcraft three yeah. that have not changed yeah. you know significantly I mean the League of Legends has changed it a little bit but you know have not changed significantly from then and. Um, you know, I guess the design has been really resilient, but it's just been really fascinating. Well, that's one of the things that I, I find actually really interesting. You know, like I've been fortunate to work on some really awesome games, mm -hmm. and um, most people probably wouldn't put Warcraft Three at the top of the, the list. But the thing that's interesting when you look at the games I've worked on, Warcraft Three has probably influenced more games than any other game I've worked sure. on. Sure. Yeah. Without Warcraft Three, yeah, that's. It's true. So without Warcraft 3, there's no MOBAs as we know them today, for sure. Well, there's also no tower defense games. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because really, Plants vs. Zombies finds its origination in the mod community of Warcraft 3 also. Yeah. Um, also, like I mentioned earlier, like matchmaking. Like, I see a lot of the matchmaking that was done in Warcraft 3 across many different games and many different studios. You know, it's, it, it is interesting, all the things that kind of spawned out of that game, which most people don't necessarily know. I almost want to, like, draw a chart one day of... <laughs> You know, all the different things that came out of that game. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's a really good point. Um, yeah, I mean, for sure, that game casts a long shadow. Um, I mean, when you have when you have the audience that you have with a game like Warcraft Three, if you put that time into the into the tools and into the you know the you know you know the the, the you know the matchmaking infrastructure and all that stuff, you know, it 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 led to some very interesting things for sure. And even World of Warcraft is interesting because um, World of Warcraft through the first three expansions was still utilizing the Warcraft three core storyline. Hmm. Yeah. They were still like, they hadn't, it really wasn't until Mist of Pandaria that they finally had to start creating new stuff that wasn't directly out of the Warcraft three storyline. <laughs> right. Right. So yeah, like, yeah, it's a good argument. That's a pivotal title. Yeah, for sure. Um, cool. Uh, well, let's see, I guess maybe we can talk a little bit about Hearthstone and, um, 
probably we're getting up to the present day. Yeah, pretty close. <laughs> um, also, Diablo three in there. Yeah. Um, the um, were you? Um, what was your role with Diablo three? Like I was the exec how? producer. I rebuilt the team. Okay. And hired everybody. And, right. You know, did basically the same role I have in Hearthstone. Right. Right. So, um, I guess it's uh, how much. Uh, I mean, I. I so you were you were kind of more involved with StarCraft than perhaps at a design levels, level. At design level. Yeah, like I was the the lead designer on Star Two, but I didn't ship it as the lead because by then I had to do more overarching responsibilities. So, so I was the lead for probably the first two thirds, and then I eventually brought Dustin Browder in, and then he took over. He came in as a senior designer, so we were kind of co-designing stuff again for for the first couple of years. He was in the studio, and then I promoted him up to lead. Yeah. So Diablo Three. I mean, one of the just extremely fascinating parts of that project is what, what happened with the auction house um, because you guys ran this, this grand experiment mm-hmm. um, and you know eventually you know, you know did a 180 on it and, and took it out of the game mm-hmm. um, which uh, which is interesting a lot of companies won't do that you know mm-hmm. they'll, they'll you know if they even if they feel like they made a bad decision they feel like they may be maybe stuck with it that was a mm-hmm. that was a big change what did that what did that feel like internally did you get were you how how confident were you in the auction house when it shipped and how how did you determine that things had gone awry um well obviously we were very confident i mean it it the thing about the auction house that you know most people would, would never know about but it was a took a tremendous concerted effort across all of Blizzard to mm-hmm. get that feature off the ground because it wasn't, there's all the technical challenges, which are sure. real, but there's all kinds of legal challenges yeah. and commerce challenges. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a very challenging feature. Mm-hmm. So for us to do it, so there was only, a lot of investment behind it, there was a lot of which investment. means the decision to turn around on it must've been a very difficult one. Yeah, it was, but, um, I mean, it, it, it wasn't, because the execs at Blizzard are all very game-focused, yep. um, it wasn't like there was a lot of people arguing to keep it. Mm-hmm. Um, I like When we were talking about it, um, we did talk about trying a few other design changes to mm-hmm. keep the auction house. Um, but, you know, Josh was actually the one that probably was the most hardcore of, you know, he just felt like it was better to remove it entirely. And I was fine with that. But... That said, I, w- I was kind of advocating making some design changes to how the auction house worked because I actually do think there's a version mm-hmm. of the auction house that does make the gameplay better and it's fun. You know, much like World of Warcraft. World of Warcraft, no one's arguing about removing that auction house. And I think what's happened, and this happens all the time in games, right? But um, sometimes when a feature is um, implemented poorly for that game, mm-hmm. people feel like, it was a bad feature or it could have just been bad execution. Sure. So how did you determine that things had gone wrong? I mean, obviously there are people who did not like the feature, but there's always people who don't like features. So now I think the biggest thing, and this is, um, you know, I think that the big miss on Diablo three was that, um, we were never able to truly beta test the game at a scale that would have, because I think we would have uncovered the problems and mm. either fixed it and probably fixed it or made changes to it before it went into wide release. But because the feature came in really hot mm. and because the way that we beta tested Diablo 3, because um, we only really stress test 
test it. We never really tried to have a big population that played the game over a period of months, which is what we did with World of Warcraft. Right. How it would affect the game economy-wise. Yeah. So we never really got at that in the beta until we had 10 million players. And yeah, it had a lot of problems that, of course, in retrospect, we're like, oh, of course it had those problems. We should have seen those things, but we just didn't see them. You know, and I think the other thing that people confuse because it's such a magnet for controversy, um, the thing that I think is bad about the auction is not actually the real money part of it because people think, oh, they did this real money thing and that's why uh-huh. it's bad. It was actually, even if you took the real money part of it out, the is the auction house itself that, that hurt the game right? because it, it just destroyed the whole, um, people's perception of how they can get their yeah. their loot. Yeah. Right. That was like the magical thing. One of yeah. the magical things that made Diablo work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so Hearthstone, um, uh, one thing that stands out for me immediately with Hearthstone is that it seems like there is kind of the similarity of, you know, with World of Warcraft, you're taking EverQuest and trying to make it, you know, find a way to mm-hmm. bring it to a, a broader audience, you know, make it more accessible, mm-hmm. you know, where you see like Hearthstone, you know, it feels like essentially you're doing the same thing for, for Magic. And that's really um, all the Blizzard games. No, that's true. Um, but in this case, it's such a direct, like, yeah. this is the game, this is the game we saw, and this is, you know, how uh, we want to whole, prove it. I mean, Warcraft 1 was Doom 2. No, I guess that's true. Yeah. No, that's true. Yeah. Um, so I mean, that's I think what Blizzard's always done really well is identify these kind of game genres that can really be cracked open to another level of magnitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I started playing Hearthstone, I was like, oh, this is this is fantastic. I mean, I just I could see all of these specific things that got pulled out of 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 Magic, and immediately the game just felt felt a lot better to me at yeah, any rate. I totally. mean, I, you know, and. Um, and that's always such a unique thing to see in design where yeah. stuff is getting stripped out and the game is improving, you yeah. know? Um, I mean, you know, it can happen a lot, just people don't do it a lot. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, a company like Wizards is just, you know, kind of, their their options are limited, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and <laughs> that game is doing great for them, obviously. So, like, it's not like they're really yeah. doing anything wrong, per se. Um, but there was definitely an opportunity to do something, yeah. you know, a, a re- make a real big change to that mm-hmm. that, that game style. Um, so, how did that how did that process get started? Um, well, I mean, the, the project was very experimental with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was something that, um, you know, we had the trading card game. Yeah. And it was actually, it was our most successful licensed product, you know, so it was definitely popular among the player base. Mm -hmm. And we'd had some people that was pretty aware of like Magic Online and, you know, it felt like there was maybe a product there. Yep. Um, And then how I ended up starting it was I actually hired, um, I've become a big fan over the years of opportunistic hires. Mm -hmm. Um, I I like, like at a really high level, like if I find someone I just think is a really talented person yeah. and I think they would be a culture fit within Blizzard, mm-hmm. then I like to hire that person and find a job for them yep. rather than all then then be on the other side of it going, Oh, I really wish I could hire this guy but I don't have yep. a job for him. Yep. And at, some of our more successful hires have come out of that philosophy. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys was uh, Ray Gresco and he he had been he had run nihilistic and was on the ghost project early in the day, but you know, I ended up hiring him inside of Blizzard, but I didn't have a project for him yet. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, you know, there's kind of this idea we've been kicking around. And it's funny that we were talking about the Dota thing earlier because what um, it was another good example of that. Because I remember back in the day, 
oh, I wish, you know, we had, you know, the spare bandwidth that we could have kicked that around a little bit. Yeah. So here we are with kind of a similar sort of idea, like here's this project. It could be a cool thing, but I don't have anyone to put on it. Mm-hmm. And then Ray comes along. I'm like, oh, Ray, why don't you see what you can do with this thing? And Ray's multi-talented. He's a design, you know, he has a software engineering background. He's got a design background. Right. Know, he's run a studio. So I'm like, hey, just go off in the corner and develop this thing out and see what you can do. And then um, it's probably like six months later, um, we the lead producer for Diablo 3 ended up leaving to go to a startup. Mm-hmm. So I moved Ray into that position, but he had done enough work on it where it's like, well, you know, maybe we, we should push this along a little bit further. So then we hired some people to replace Ray and kind of started pushing that game along. And, and some of the idea was, you know, I, I wanted to not only do that game, that was part of the goal, but I wanted to see, could we make, you know, does, does a Blizzard game mean Epic Scope? Or yeah. can you make a Blizzard game that actually has very limited scope, but still feels Blizzard? And wouldn't it be great if we if we didn't always have the issue of we have to turn down these different ideas because we're always max bandwidth? So yeah. could we have a smaller, more agile team that could explore ideas? Mm-hmm. So that was some of the goals around Team 5 along with the game itself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they started developing it. And I think um, one of the things too that was detrimental to the project, but the long run ended up really benefiting them was um, a good chunk of the team got pulled off for about nine months mm-hmm. to help finish star two. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure you're seeing a theme here at blizzard. <laughs> this kind of happens at blizzard where a game will kind of get close to the finish line. And we have to borrow resources from another team, which hurts them, but yeah. gets the game out. So that happened to the hearthstone team where they actually lost all pretty much all their software engineers and producers. And yep. So the designers were left on the team with really no support for about nine months. Mm-hmm. But they had a flash prototype, yep. and that's when they did a lot of that that work you're talking about. They they just played the game, yep. you know, in a really basic state. And they and what they would do was um, they would really test all these mechanics to see what's load bearing. Yep. And they would they would cut all these different things away, and that's when they would uncover like, oh, this actually makes the game more fun. Yeah. And then occasionally they'd take something out and go, okay, well now, now the we know. Not, now the game's not deep. Yeah. So they would add some stuff back in, but they were doing a lot of experimentation with all those types of mechanics and seeing how far how much could they strip out. And I think because they also don't have anyone to implement features, can't add anything. So mm. all they can really do to iterate <laughs> is remove stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, so I think a lot of that kind of happened during that time period. And, you know, the other big challenge, you know, when I was talking to the guys who early on, I was involved with, you know, trying to figure out like, what is the scope of this game and what are kind of those pillars? And what I always tell them is, um, don't just do mechanics just because they're in the trading card game, mm-hmm. you know, use, use that as inspiration mm-hmm. and you have all this artwork you can use, yeah. but make, make a digital first right. card battling game. Yeah. You know, just because there's some mechanic in there, I mean, change whatever you want. Like, because you and, might as well differentiate yourself from the physical games, right? And the thing so. that I think is really interesting too is if you get into that headspace, there's all these different mechanics that you would never be able to do in a physical yeah. card game that you can totally do exactly. With you yeah. know, and, and once they started rolling on that, I think that you know really also started bringing out what was special about that game. Yeah, it's great being able to work on a um, you know a multiplayer a multiplayer focused competitive game is such a fun development experience because as long as you have one other opponent, you can just keep mm-hmm. 
playing the game, changing the game, playing the game, yeah. changing the game, playing the game, changing the game. You get such a great loop. You know, where with single player, it's you know, or or something like wow, where it's just so so vast yeah. that it's hard, it's so hard to judge your progress. You know, there's yeah. a lot of wandering. Whereas like competitive multiplayer games, it grounds you so much in where your game is actually at yeah. at the moment. Um, yeah. Um, so so yeah, they got their team back. Yeah, uh, and they built it in Unity. Yeah, is that right? That, but that also was a mid-project switchover. From, they were developing their own engine okay. initially, and then that ran into some problems, and then we switched over to Unity. Right. So that's an interesting choice because it seems like Blizzard would not be short on technology. Um, but uh, so, what were the big? What was? What were they looking to get out of Unity? Well, I mean, the, I mean, the biggest thing was the, I mean, the, the challenge at Blizzard has always been all the teams always want to do all their technology and engines from scratch. I feel like there's yeah. a lot of other studios that are probably a little bit better about building a foundation of technology that all the games get to benefit from. Mm-hmm. But Blizzard's almost always been... Everything's custom. Yeah, everything's custom. Um, but I think, you know, some of the things that was happening with that team was, you know, the one of the forcing functions on scope was the 15-person team. It's mm-hmm. like that was as big as I was going to let the team be. So yeah. a lot of the direction was, well, make the best game you can make with 15 people. Yeah. Um, you know, and do you really need to build a big, like, a custom engine for this game? Is that is that where you want to spend that headcount? Yeah. You know, and, and is that really what makes the game better anyways? Yeah. Like, you know, Unity seemed to offer everything that the game needed. Mm-hmm. So why rebuild it all? Right. Build something from scratch. Yeah. That's cool. So, with your role in the project, were there any specific things that you remember, you know, being involved with, you know, specific suggestions, or did did that project sort of, uh, you know, they just did a good job with it and it went? I mean, I was definitely involved all along the way, Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it's definitely Eric Dodds is the the game director, and and he's he's the main guy, but he'll also be the first to tell you that one of the things that was great about that project was because it was small, it mm. really did have that old school way of designing a game where they all got to basically sit in the same room together yep. and design together. Yep. So even though Eric was leading the design, you know, like that entire team kind of mind melded together and we're just throwing in all kinds of cool ideas together all the time. So you got that small company feel inside of Blizzard. That's right. Which is not a, you know... It's yeah. a harder thing to pull off than probably people think. Oh, it's super hard to pull off. But I mean, but it's funny because that team went from being a little bit of the the black sheep of Blizzard yeah. to being the darling of Blizzard. Where because that team's so happy and has such great morale, and they did this cool game. Now everyone wants to be on a team. Five, <laughs> you know, so it's totally gone the other direction, which is it's really cool. I'm really happy for those guys. Yeah. But as far as like um, like specific stuff, you know. Like I, I was involved in different things along the way, but probably the, the area where I, I got my hands a little bit dirty was redesigning the ranking system and the okay. meta progression. Because we got the game to a playable state within the company, and it was in alpha, and everyone was really enjoying it. But there's a couple issues. Um, one was there wasn't really great like meta progression. Mm-hmm. You know, like you like what how you were playing the game was you could go into constructed mode yeah. or you can play an arena, yeah. which then was called forge and arena was super fun. Like yeah. it was pretty much like the version you're playing right now. Mm-hmm. And that was fun. But, um, the ranking system that was in the, the play mode wasn't as compelling and people weren't generally playing it, which means 
there really wasn't a reason to even get card packs, Yeah, you know, because that's really the mode where you want to do the card packs and people weren't doing it. And there wasn't really a great um, meta progression that makes you feel like you want to play a thousand games of it. You know, so those are probably the two big areas that I got really involved design wise because Eric, one of the things probably among all the, the top designers of Blizzard, he's probably the best at doing stuff for, you know, accessibility and kind of the casual player. Um, but that means he's actually not as good at the hardcore competitive sort of stuff. Like mm. he, so, so that's been more my specialty. So right, right. I would come in and get involved in that. And, and, you know, I think I was a little rough on Eric at first, but then we kind of got to a good spot where <laughs> we were able to work, work on that stuff a little better. So what's the, what's the basic concept of how the, the ranking system works in, in Hearthstone? Well, the way it did work is, um, so there was, I think, seven different ranks, and it was like bronze, silver, gold, master, something like that. And it would have um, one-week season cycles. Mm-hmm. And um, so so what was happening is um, people would play, but then your progression basically got wiped out the next week, and it just felt like um, I had to re-earn my rank every single week mm-hmm. and there wasn't really, um, and there weren't a lot of ranks and you couldn't see the opponent opponent's rank. So it only mattered to you. So there's like all these things I feel like if you want to make a really cool ranking system that you have to be thinking about. Okay. Um, one of the things I, I think is really important is, um, you have to be able to show off your rank, right? you know, and there's gotta be enough ranks. So there's differentiation and prestige to them. Mm-hmm. And so like that was a couple of the really early things that I want to do was we have to have a lot more ranks and there's different systems we could have done. I mean, you could do an ELO score, even though I've already told you why I don't like those, right. but that accomplishes that differentiation, like seven ranks. I didn't feel like it was enough differentiation. So I got up to 25. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we displayed the rank uh-huh. in the game. So you can see what your opponent's rank is right. and see what yours is. Yep. And in your friends list, you can see your friends and see their rank. So that was stuff that got added because, you know, it's kind of like the, do you hear a, a tree in the forest fall if you're not there? You know, it's yep. like the rank is only meaningful if everyone else can see it and right. you get that, that kudos. Oh my God, you're in legend. That's awesome. So like that was, that was key. Um, the whole legend system was a new experimental thing I wanted to do, which I think worked out really well. But um, it's that trying to solve that problem that 99% of your audience is not going to actually be truly competitive. Right. So trying to give them a system that they enjoy, mm. but then among the hardest core of the hardcore, which also really, really matters for a competitive game because you need your sports stars, uh-huh. give them like almost their own ranking system, right. which is different. So when you hit, that's when you hit 25. It's just a different one. But yeah. Oh, you right, start at 25 right. and go up to one. And then yeah. once you get to one, you enter a whole different pool, which now you can't get kicked out of either until the end of the month. Hmm. Okay. So now you're kind of in your own special area called, you know, legendary rank. Right. And now you'll just get literally what number you are in the world. How many, how many players are there in that? I mean, it group? expands over the month. I'm not sure, you know, like thousands, I think. Right. So, so are there any sort of tricky details about how people get moved up from rank to rank? Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, there, there's something else I want to try, which is a little bit different that, um, so one of the things I've never liked about any of the ranking systems I've worked on Mm -hmm. is how, um, the, the weird fuzzy math that you get bonus points or lose points that, that you kind of need to drive you up and down the system. 
But because we're doing things like, okay, well, what's my, what's my rating? What's your rating? And then based on that differentiation causes some weird math of how many points I get subtracted or added. Yeah. It's not transparent enough. Exactly. Right. So what I want to do in Hearthstone was actually try to do something that's totally transparent, but it also means it's not going to be as exact. So that was like the whole idea of these stars. Mm -hmm. So, um, so every game you win, you're going to get one star or or you're going to lose a star. Yeah. And it's really simple. Now, the problem with that is just that, um, well, there's a few different problems, but one of the things I was trying to also solve for is the beginning of the season, it can be a little rough because mm-hmm. now, you know, because it's also doing the matchmaking. Uh-huh. So what you want to do, but I don't know a way to design a system to do this, is that at the beginning of the season, the expert players will play the expert players and they go up to the ranking system really fast. But there's really no way to do that. You know, you have to match people based on their rank. Yeah. So the whole bonus streak idea was a way to still keep the system very simple and transparent, but I'm presuming that the really good players are going to have win streaks right. so I can push them up through the system faster. And then once they stop winning all the time, they're at the right place. Right? So when, when you're on a win streak, you get extra stars? Is yeah. that the idea? Okay. Yeah. And is there a set number of stars you need to go up each level? Yeah, I mean, it, it basically goes in... At, it requires more and more like any it's, sort yeah. of experience level system. So sure. at first it only takes two stars and then the next five levels is three and then four and then five to go up a level. So it gets harder and harder to go up levels. Right. Okay. But yeah, that was the thing to me. I'm like, let's just make it super transparent. And I know yeah. that there's going to be imperfections on the math side, but I'm this time I'm going to choose transparency right. over perfection in the system. Well, it's, 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 it can be an important goal. If people care about a system, like there's value in making it transparent, yeah. right? So that they, it's not just this this strange mystery to them. Yeah. Um, but those are some of the things that that I put into that, and and the thing that, and then like the season length was another big one. You know, where um, you know Eric liked the idea of them being really fast. Like that's why he's doing weekly. Because again, he's biasing towards the casual player. So mm-hmm. his thinking is well. You know, it'd be really fun because casual players getting progression every week. Yeah. But what actually was happening was it felt like you have to grind every week. Mm. So the intended psychology was kind of the was different than what actually was happening. And then I also think season length um, directly correlates to how important does this rank mean, anyways. Right. You know, so. So I was probably more in favor of a three month season. Uh-huh. So we ended up landing on a month. A month. Yeah. yeah. And you feel like that's working. I think it's working pretty well. Like I, I, I wonder long term. Yeah. I feel like long term they're gonna actually want longer seasons. Yeah. I think it's fine when the game's really early on like it is now, but I think eventually, assuming that there's a big audience that stays with the game for years, yep. I think eventually it's gonna feel like too fast of a cycle. Yeah. So are you ready to talk about these games now that they're they're no longer? It's funny because you you mentioned a few times. Sort of casually, like, well, we, we should try this, or well, yeah, I'd like to see this happen. You're not a Blizzard anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These are not your games. How? Uh, what? Do, what do you see? What? What are you? What are you hoping to do now? Uh, right now, it's it's really just kind of take a mid career break, yeah. you know. And I think um, where my head is really at is regroup and rethink and kind of do some learning. Like one of the things that I've been, you know, my career at Blizzard over the last several years has really been at a breakneck pace, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, 
you know, haven't been reading books. I even, you know, haven't been playing as many games. So I feel like a lot of what I want to accomplish over the next X amount of months is kind of get back into that again, like mm-hmm. just learning and watching movies and talking to people and playing games. And then I feel like once I've done that for a period of time and I've kind of reset myself a bit, then I'll be ready to, to do something new and cool. Get some new inspiration. You know, yeah. New basis. Yeah. No, that's, that sounds good. Um, what, um, do you feel like the motivations for why you, um, wanted to make games are the same now as they were 20 years ago? Um, I mean, I, I think it's more just matured. I don't think I have different goals. I mean, the thing that, um, I think my entire career and even before I had a career, you know, I've really enjoyed kind of making things for people that they enjoy. You know, it's like, I think even when we were talking earlier about when I used to run D and D campaigns, you know, right. it's really entertaining my friends every night. And I found a lot of enjoyment in doing that. And I think what's really interesting about the arc of my career is I've just been able to do it for more and more people, <laughs> you know, and even that it's funny, my, my old D and D group that I used to dungeon master for high school, um, you know, they became big world of Warcraft fans. Mm. So in this weird way, yeah, you're you still, know, still doing it. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think, you know, that's something I, I've always really liked. And I think, um, you know, it's just, interesting exploring different types of games the other thing i've really been fortunate with my career is um i i haven't just had to work in one genre i feel like that's unfortunate for a lot of designers that they end up at studios and they basically just stay on one franchise their entire career and and i like doing new things so you know being able to work across so many different genres has been really enjoyable too yeah do you have a sense of like the scale you want to work at like No, not really yet. I mean, I think, I mean, I don't know if I want to make a, have a big gigantic team to do something like that. Cause I feel like a lot of that job becomes more about managing a team and organization than it is about making something. Right. But still, if there's something I want to make that requires a big team, then I'd do it. Yeah. Well, since you don't know what you want to do next, what are the games that interest you right now? Like, what are the ones that have, have changed your thinking the most in the last couple of years? Um, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I'm definitely starting to become more interested in kind of the tablet space just because it's new. Like I can't Mm -hmm. really say there's been all these great games. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just, it's an interesting new space to see games in because I feel like it's going to enable games that we haven't seen yet and genres we haven't seen yet. Um, and I think it's less about the technology. A lot of people always think about, oh, you know, now I can push more pixels or now I can do physics. And what I, what I always think about is, um, it's usually user interface driven. Yeah. I mean, that's really the thing that causes new genres to appear. Yeah, I mean, sometimes sure. technology, but mm-hmm. that's because we made some quantum leap and now we have the internet. Okay. But usually I think it's, it's user interface, right? So we, you know, we, I think we've made a lot of genres for mouse and keyboard. Mm-hmm. We made a lot of genres for game pads, but you know, what's going to be the genres that come out of touch. Right. Yeah. I mean, RTS is so wedded to, you know, mouse and keyboard, for example, you know, yeah. what, what are the, the natural games that, that fall out of a touch screen interface? Yeah. You know, we don't, uh, I, I need better games for my iPad. That is for right. sure. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, it hasn't lived up to its promise yet. So, um, there is definitely work to be done there. Yeah. Oh, cool. 
Well, thank you for taking all this time for talking. Yeah, it was a long one. I didn't expect we were going to go for like five hours. <laughs> um, I, think it, I think it turned out really well. So uh, I, think, I think a lot of people will really enjoy listening to it. Mm-hmm.